Awesome. Welcome here, Sala. Uh, Thank you. And so fun to, to have someone to speak deep math with as well, <laughs> even though I have no clue what your thesis is about. Uh, and it's really complicated, but um, very fun to be able to, to, to talk about these topics in depth. But I heard that you also are getting a new uh, thesis students in the spring, which seems to have a rather interesting topic with ferret learning and recommender system. What, what is, uh, what's the plan there? Yeah, um, so... I mean, I kind of tend to <laughs> identify things that I think could be important for the bank going forward. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I'm we're fortunate in having really good contact with researchers in different universities and, and um, sourcing really talented mm -hmm. students to look at different things. So what we want to do with these specific students that I had like a meeting with today um, is to look at whether we could use some sort of a federated approach to deploying recommender engines, um, probably mainly for retail clients, mm -hmm. um, probably not this year or next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think it's still sort of, a, it's a really important area for us to explore. Mm -hmm. And it's two of my favorite topics as well, <laughs> federated learning and recommender systems. But but can you just uh, explain perhaps for, for people not familiar, you know, what is the application? How can customers of SEB potentially make use of this? Yeah, um, so my my sort of idea um, is that we need to be able to give good uh, advice to our clients, um, especially on the retail side. Um, and today we have something called open banking in financial services, which sort of opens up for clients to have several different banks, but have like one app, for instance, where you can see all of your transactions and all of your money and everything. So you can actually collect everything, which means mm -hmm. that you become... <laughs> Bless you. Sorry, guys. <laughs> sorry. Corona times doesn't know. No. Yeah, this is scary. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, sorry. Yeah. So, so open banking allows you to to like collect all your information in one place, um, and that means that that there's a, a sort of a, a new possibility to create better recommend recommendations for you as a client, yeah. but you might not necessarily want to share all your information with one bank. Right. Um, you might want to have a, a good recommender engine that that caters to your needs, um, but does not necessarily <clears throat> share the data in itself. So you want to have recommender engines locally that share some parameters mm. uh, somehow with like the mother brain or something of, yeah. of the algorithm. And, and recommend what? I mean, I can, you know, certainly appreciate that financial data, of course, is super sensitive and it needs to be kept secret and you don't want to extract it and share it unnecessarily. But I guess there are many different things you could potentially recommend. But do you have any plans? You know, what do you want to start with to recommend to clients? Well, I think... Um, and this is probably because I'm really colored by by something that I did together with a couple colleagues a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think the sort of investment space is somewhere that's it's really important for our clients to get good advice. Um, and it's it's an opportunity to potentially create wealth or mm -hmm. see to it that your pension is as good as possible. So recommending funds or shares yeah. or, or stocks or what? Yeah, so but probably initially recommending funds mm -hmm. um, because the sort of the legal framework that we work in when we're a bank mm -hmm. um, is very restrictive, which I think is good because it keeps our clients safe. Um, but it also means that we need to take into account a lot of different things in the recommender engine. Mm. I mean, it's not like <laughs> if you look at Netflix and I think we talked about this before. Yeah. If you look at Netflix and you get recommended a, a really bad movie, you might get a bit annoyed, mm. but the impact is is way smaller. Mm. Um, yeah. I really like this approach because normally when you do like stock trading or this kind of algorithmic uh, stock trading, you, you simply look at the, you know what actually makes the most profit. But to actually have a personalized way 
to invest in things that you personally like, I guess it's another view to do it or another way to do it that potentially is even more. Yeah, and, and to me, it's a huge difference between robotic trading here and now to how I invest long term and maybe depending on my risk profile that I want to have as a, a customer, I be- get a better understanding for what type of funds would suit my pension planning. Yeah. And which it could even be different when you're young mm. and you want to be more aggressive and maybe more safe when it's at the end. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. And And it's also like... I might have a preference to have sustainable products mm. rather than than sort of the cheapest products, or mm. I might want to to invest in things that I believe are important for the yes. future. Um, and then having like a, a good way of of giving that kind of recommend recommendations, I think it, it will be really interesting. Um, I think mm. it's it's a challenging problem, but I like to do. Stuff it's a that's quite concrete. <laughs> it's a quite concrete problem, yeah. and it's something that we do today. But someone needs to physically do it and be very knowledgeable. Mm. And how can you, in the end, keep track of all the funds in the world that you potentially could invest in? And if you look at the global uh, financial space, potentially the the world looks different when it's not only to know about the couple of funds in Sweden, Mm. but my pension fund can be invested in stocks somewhere else. Or then it becomes a whole other ball game. Who will be? Can a person actually recommend them? Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I think the fun part about having sort of thesis students is that uh, I can sometimes choose topics that are just interesting to me. (laughs) 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 So it's not necessarily aligned at all with the strategy of the bank, but I still think that it's really important for us to to sort of at least explore the the opportunities that we have in different uh, spaces. And I know stock trading is something you have worked with yourself a bit, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'd love to get more into that topic as well. But before we go too deep into these topics, perhaps we should start by (laughs) simply introducing yourself. Who is uh, Salah Francine? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I work at SEB. Um, I'll start with my, my job. Uh, I'm the group chief data scientist at SEB. I've been so for the last three years, a little bit more than three years. Um, and so my, my job description is to inspire the bank to become more data driven. Mm-hmm. It's Important very, job. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's It's a big vision and it's a bit scary and it's also super fun. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so when I came in three years ago, we had like three data scientists working in that team. And the last years we've grown. So now there's 10 of 11 of us. I always forget myself for some reason. Um, and eight of them are sort of hardcore data scientists. And then I have two people that are really skilled in data visualization um, because yeah. those two kind of tend to go hand in hand. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so we work in loads of different use cases across the bank and have done so since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And do you have many pockets of data scientists within SAP? Or is this, uh, I, I assume you have for the different use cases or domains, but, but this is the central one to look at. What's the difference with your 10 guys? Yeah, uh, so I think the... the All girls, of course. I yes, mean. yes, we, we are actually gender diverse. <laughs> yeah. When I say guys, I mean yeah. the team. Good. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, so I mean, we have data scientists working in, in many different parts of the organization. Um, so we're going for something called a federated approach. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I think... So for for me, the the main point is that the data scientists working in the organization should be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a data scientist tends to be happy when they have data to look at and some interesting question and they get the attention from the business that they need. Mm. And so we have some people working in in sort of more mature 
parts of the organization and they actually work locally uh, mm. and then they tend to more um, embedded yeah yeah and they tend to like to come to our weekly meetings we have a data science community to try to like keep the the team spirit alive mm. um, and then we have other parts where the maturity is sort of growing um, and there we have maybe some data scientists there and some in my team sort of collaborating. Mm -hmm. And then we have other areas where we're just starting. And mm -hmm. then it makes sense to have this sort of central uh, team that can come in and, and so help. Is that, so you are working on the group level and you're su supporting. And then when, when a, a domain gets more and more mature, the typical journey is that they then find their own little team locally. Yeah, and sometimes it's people from my team that sort of fall in love in so, with some area, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I'm more than happy for them to to join that team or to yeah, yeah. to blossom into yeah. the organization. <laughs> yeah, I always tell my team that once they they come once they come to my team, they will never leave. They might leave sort of physically, but emotionally, they will oh, always be <laughs> be in my team. And SEB is a super interesting one, of course, but um, it's more to Salah than SEB, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps you can start a, or talk a bit about your background as well before SEB. Yeah, sure. Um, so I I grew up in quite many different countries. So I, I'm a Finnish citizen to start with, and now I'm a Swedish citizen as well. Um, I lived in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Finland, obviously, the UK and France um, oh. before the age of six, 17. Um, and then when I was done with like high school, uh, I decided to come to Sweden because at the time I had a boyfriend who was Swedish. <laughs> uh, and I chose Uppsala University because it's like a, a good university. It's well renowned uh, internationally. And I was going to do like six months of math and then do something that would give me a job. Um, because at the time, mathematicians were not certain something. I mean, my uncle was a mathematician, but I think it didn't really feel like it was something that you could get like a proper job with. Um, so I did six months of math and then I did six more months of math and then I did a year more and suddenly I was uh, sort of accepted to the PhD program and then <laughs> 10 years later I finished my PhD thesis and then I did a postdoc in Oslo and in Sundsvall. Um, but I think while I was writing, finalizing my thesis, I was really starting to think about what I wanted in life. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, theoretical mathematics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah, just theoretical math, topology, geometry, yeah, analysis, algebra. And I and tried to read uh, a bit about your um, PhD thesis as well in theoretical math. And, uh, and I must say it was really hard to, to comprehend. <laughs> but if you were still to try to describe your, your thesis work and, and your main focus areas, how would you describe it? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Let's see how good I am at, at explaining stuff. <laughs> um, so I think so I was working in, in several complex variables. So it's like um, complex analysis in one dimension is it's the wave equation. It's all of these equations that were very beneficial for engineering. Um, and then as a mathematician, you start to think, okay, but what if we add another variable? Does that make things more fun? Um, or is there something new that arises? And there actually is something quite surprising. Um, and for me, it's that the, the geometry starts to play a role. So depending on how you, if you have a surface um, in, in more complex dimensions, depending on how the surface looks, you can say a lot about how the functions are going to, to behave there. Mm. Um, so it becomes like a, a really interesting problem to understand how much does the geometry dictate the behavior of the functions right. so that's kind of yeah that was the focus area and we found this new way of cutting up um, uh, surfaces in complex dimensions and gluing them back together mm -hmm. yes and making some 
proofs for that. Yeah. So you said something about that your supervisor had worked on this problem earlier and now there was the math was evolving and the whole idea for the thesis was new ways to look at yeah. this problem. Could yeah. you elaborate a little bit more? What was the new part of looking at the, the mathematical problem? Yeah, yes, I think um, the, there's been a lot of sort of advances in both differential topology and differential geometry. Um, and both of these tools were kind of needed um, in order to be able to actually glue together the, the sort of stuff that you cut. Um, so you have like a, you have a, a surface and then you cut it in a smart way. And the smart way of cutting is, is also quite new. Um, so that's like a theory that was developed probably in parallel with uh, when my supervisor was looking at that problem. Um, but then as the theory evolved by others, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's quite often that the and th- this is one of the beauties of math for me. <laughs> it's that um, if you have a, an interest in specific areas of math and you really learn them, then usually there's this odd bridge suddenly uh, okay. between two very different mathematical areas. And and if you know both of them, you, you will see something that not other people might see. Intersectional innovation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unification of theories in some way. Oh, that's yeah. another way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think Paul Ardash has this. Um, philosophy that there's like a, a book of all mathematics that there is mm. um, and that as a mathematician you're kind of <clears throat> you get access to small parts of that book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, super good. <laughs> I'm eager to go to like a Kant and um, this kind of you know <laughs> Is does uh, even thing? Uh, I shouldn't go there. But it's we, too we, philosophical. But no, but I don't no. think so. But we should keep it, we should keep that beauty a little bit because you said also what, one of the things with maths and what attracted you to stay there for ten years is the actual beauty of maths and the the, the philosophical dimensions of it. So let's compartmentalize, yeah. park that, and um, come to the philosophical part when we finish a little bit. Like where from here? Where 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 where, where was your journey now out of the academic maybe? Mm. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> so what happened? Yeah, so ten years. Thank you. <laughs> ten years, and now what took you out of the ac- academia? Yeah. So then I was kind of. Well, I was thinking more about like what do I want in life, mm. um, and I am the kind of person who really needs to learn new things. I get bored quite mm. easily, um, and I kind of found finance quite interesting, um, both because there's a lot of mathematics in finance, and also, excuse me. <coughs> It's not Corona. Um, I, I found sort of, I had a feeling that there were a lot of applications that would be fun to look at um, from like a semi-mathematics, but more applied uh, perspective. And I also thought that it was quite lonely to be an, an academic researcher. Um, I'm a very social person. <laughs> uh, so then I got, my first job was in this small hedge fund. Um, and I built like a risk performance uh, assessment thing for them. Um, it was really small. It was my two managers and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were probably the best people to introduce me to finance because they took so much time to really explain like how does trading work if you look at markets what should you be looking at and why is there a spike in this curve and mm-hmm. and it was the perfect learning opportunity and they treated me so so well and what um, was the problem that they wanted you to help them solve mathematically yeah so <laughs> the problem the first problem was to to create like a system in order to be able to monitor how the the fund was performing mm-hmm. um, but they had sort of a systematic way of, of investing so they invested in the US equities based on like uh, customer sentiment from from a research um, a team uh, and the idea was that we could sort of um, uh, refine uh, the algorithms that they were using um, in order to identify the the best stocks to to invest in um, mm. based on the customer sentiment mm. 
So this was not more technical analysis, more fundamentals, you would say, based on this customer sentiment team or? Yeah, yeah. I think they had quite a, a fundamental approach. Um, mm. And had I stayed for longer than I did, mm. uh, I would probably have started to implement some more sort of quantumental or mm. quant, um, quant aspects yeah. to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've discussed this uh, this topic a number of times and I have some friends that really loves tradings in, in stocks or currency and whatnot. So, so one can speak about that for a long time. <laughs> Someone is, is claiming, for example, that there is even no point, and I'm, I'm not agreeing with this, but <laughs> some people say, are saying that there is no point in analyzing fundamentals and the only thing you need to do is looking at the technical analysis and the curves of stock prices, open and closed prices and whatnot. Mm. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, I used to, when I, this was 2008, I was working in the hedge fund and I used to tell my managers that I wanted to start the A fund that would just invest in stocks starting with A. And then <laughs> now you have like Apple, Amazon, Alphabet. It must work. You would have killed it. You would have killed it. Scary thing, it probably would have worked. It would have worked, I'm telling you. It would because have been the perfect timing. Because the smart companies figures out we need to get on the top. So we need to have an A name. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there's actually quite some some fun anecdotes about the, the naming of companies. Like uh, apparently there's a company that has Zoom as their ticker yeah. <laughs> and they've been performing really well during the pandemic because people <laughs> think that it's the, the, the Zoom oh, yeah. that we use when we're in virtual meetings, but it's something completely different. Yeah, um, yeah no, but so I, I think... I think there's still some alpha in fundamentals. I think it's good as a hygiene factor. Um, but I think like if you want to outperform the best and the brightest, uh, I think it's really sort of open data and, and funky data um, mm. that can give you the edge, um, mm. unless you're just a lucky person. <laughs> <laughs> lucky is interesting to have. I had a friend, you know, he, he built an algorithm and he basically said that um, I will build some algorithm, it will make some recommendation and I will do the exact opposite. <laughs> And that's my strategy. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Just to give yourself, I think this is brilliant. He put all this effort in order to, and what was his logic? Well, if I can build an algorithm, so can someone else. And then everybody else will do that. So I will do the opposite to the market. It's, it's a it's kind of reverse logic here. I think. There is some weird logic in that reasoning, but yeah, yeah. I really like that. But the interesting thing, did, well, is he rich? No. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you have a lot of really really, really smart mathematicians that have started funds that have gone yeah. belly up as well. I yeah. think there's there's such a lot of, of uh, funky noise in the market. It's mm. like my, my favorite example that I always tell, preferably in, in like really formal settings, is when Kim, I think Kim Kardashian, one of the Kardashians tweeted mm. about Snapchat and that had a massive impact on the stock price. <laughs> Yeah, so just follow you the tried to make an algorithm to fix that, right? <laughs> I mean, there is a trade uh, Trump trading algorithm as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. just look at uh, Trump uh, tweets, and it actually is working well, very well. Yeah. Right, very well. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I think it's called the Kofefe uh, index. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> His misspelling that he made. Yeah, at some point. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. it's good fun. It's weird. Yeah. So but, hedge fund, yeah. But yeah. speaking a bit more seriously about stock trading, I mean, there is like a good value and a purpose for having stock markets. I mean, you can get capital into, into companies and, and that can be a good way to to source further innovation and research and, and products. Um, but there are also negative sides with the speculation and everything. But what's your thinking there? Do you think that, you know, an increased amount of high frequency trading or algorithmic trading is positive or negative uh, for the stock market? Yeah. So I was the the uh, head of the index stock funds at SEB for like three and a half, four years. Ah. Um, and I think for if I start there, um, I think the index funds in themselves, they actually 
mainly provides stability mm. um, because they're just following the sort of index um, mm. and it's the market. So it's the market cap of each uh, um, company and then you weight according to that and that's what you hold. Um, so I think without the index funds, I think the high frequency trading could have done a lot more to damage mm. um, the market. Um, and it's it's quite interesting to see sort of how it's like a competition mm. um, and you can see sort of how the, the some of the algorithms are really trying to attack like index rebalancings or some algorithms are really like very, very highly weighted on some news feed. Um, and then you can almost like backwards engineer what it is they're trying to do. Mm. Um, and it's uh, I find that fascinating. I mean, it's like it's it's like its own person almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I have a colleague who always says that like, if you're scared of AI, we already have AI because the market is not sort of, and it's it's kind of an AGI even <laughs> because <laughs> it just adapts and nobody really knows why. <laughs> it's like an organize, or, organism in itself. It's an yeah. organism yeah. in yeah. itself. Yeah. All these different bots yeah. driving different behavior and they are strengthening their, their own patterns, so to speak. Yeah. So it's really hard to understand. Yeah. So are you positive or negative about the future in stock trading in general? I think I'm quite positive. I think over time regulation has become sort of better mm. at catching behaviors that are actually really detrimental. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, because I, I do think that the the stock market is is needed mm. um, because it's a it's Absolutely. a really good way to get funding for yes. for companies. Um, and I think I think sort of over time. As, as long as people actually adhere to the regulations, uh, I mean, the, the companies adhere to, to like discl- disclosure uh, regulations, I think that hopefully the, the price will adjust over time mm. and some people will make money and some people might lose money. But what about like high frequency trading? I mean, why can't you simply or shouldn't that be regulated more, you think? Or do you think it has some positive impact of having high frequency trading? I think from... No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think from a, a theoretical mathematician viewpoint, mm. yes. <laughs> yes, <I can laughs> because it's see super that. cool what they're doing. It's like so you have to be a total sort of you really be, need to be passionately interested in mm. in sort of uh, the nitty gritty of the, of all the algorithms and understand what kind of cables you need. Exactly, and, minimizing yeah, fiber cable yeah, lengths yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, I remember listening to a talk by someone that. I think at Nasdaq, um, that was saying that the the frequency of the algorithms are so fast that they now have to start upgrading the whole sort of setup in the server hall mm. because it turned out that so the the people who build HFT algorithms are are really sort of into the details and and they had found out that the sort of entrance points for the trades into the actual trading system um, there were two entrances and it was a little bit random um, so even if you were first you might end up in a queue. Um, so, so they needed to start looking into upgrading their sort of entry points, um, because they couldn't handle the speed. Um, So it's like one millisecond or less slower and then it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a a mu seconds. Mu seconds. Nanoseconds. (laughs) Nanoseconds. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. I call them mu seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's a weird business for sure. And what do you think is the next level of uh, AI in, in, in the trading? Is, is because we also talk about the you know, highest robotic approaches and now we have more fundamental approaches or more we can analyze sentiment what happens when we start merging what's the next level of ai in trading you think where is this going the next couple of years yeah what's the trend i think it's going to trend differently in different regions because i think it's starting to come into like the 
kind of ethical value driven mm -hmm. uh, area. Sorry, I think um, yeah, I think the the funky data edition is is going to change a lot. And what do you Fun mean with that? Yeah, yeah, what do you mean with so that? So I, I mean stuff like satellite images of uh, parking oh. lots. I mean um, weather data. Okay, so you, predicting you, it's more driver based data. Yeah. Dry, that you connect to the rest of the fundamentals you have. Yeah. So you can basically see trends where this this is actually not in reality working so well for, because they have no customers. Yeah. Uh, parking lot, empty parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I think in the like happy 80s, uh, I think the way that a fund manager would could get information um, was to sort of speak to the CEO or speak to someone in the senior management and, and really listen and understand where the company was going. Mm -hmm. um, but nowadays, everybody's really trained for that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's really difficult to, to get any kind of alpha signal um, from from sort of the human interaction. Well, actually, they know how to manipulate the signal to send yeah. the right signal. Yeah. Um, so then it becomes sort of, uh, yeah. I mean, that's if you like hunting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's a uh, quite a fun thing because you're kind of hunting alpha continuously, <laughs> and I I like that. So yeah. so and this also goes goes back to your thesis student and you know having some kind of recommender system potentially to help people know what fun to buy or or what not. Mm. You're gonna look for funky data. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to pick out what, what this thesis is all about. This is super cool. <laughs> Parking lot recommender system. Yeah, we to think go. you should park so over here. What's the <laughs> best? Scary at all. How do we profile IKEA with funky data? I love it. <laughs> oh, by the way, they're not on traded. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but if you were to still recommend some person that is interested in stock trading or, or buying funds or for retirement or whatnot, uh, what would be your advice? If you think like index funds versus different types of funds or perhaps some more AI type of funds. I'm yeah. not sure if SCB has any tech funds. Like uh, AI, that more or less like uh, you know funds that use AI to actually... Okay, you mean like that? Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be a really boring answer. Um, I'm not allowed to give financial advice. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> and it's, yeah, we can take that offline. Tell, take some more wine. And, and take some more wine. And then, we'll and then we, the real conversation starts at nine, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, okay, but we, we respect that, of course. So, but, but Perfect answer. Perfect. I, I think it's, it's really interesting to have something else than just looking at technical and something else than just looking at fundamentals, but actually using recommender systems that can personalize recommendations. Yeah. I think that's a new like, third view that I think is missing a lot. Yeah. And, and I, I think that view will become more and more important when we basically want to save the earth at the same time. Mm -hmm. And some people care and other people don't care. And actually we can... We can choose to vote with our wallet yeah. if we have those kind of recommender systems in place. Yeah. I, I think that's completely aligned with where the mark, you know, where the whole world needs to go. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. And I think we went through your background a bit then. So you had your PhD, a lot of math and hedge fund programming and algorithmic, and then it was a CV, right? Yeah. Or, hmm? Yeah, and, and you've been there for some time now. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, next year it's actually a decade. Ooh, interesting. So one decade of math, one decade of finance. <laughs> <laughs> Can you perhaps uh, talk a bit about how, how did you get started uh, at SAB? Yeah, yeah. So I was headhunted. I to this day I don't know who recommended me. Uh, I was working in the small hedge fund. I felt like I was sitting in a cupboard just having fun um, and being quite me? invisible. <laughs> so it was a surprise when I was contacted by the headhunter, and I started working for Fund Risk. 
so as a quant, um, doing sort of tracking error modeling, loads of different regulations coming in and building sort of the, the calculations for that. Um, and I think I was really fortunate because when I started, uh, the, the person who hired me apparently talked to the, the fund company and said that they think that I'll be tired of this fund risk stuff in within like a year or two. Um, and they need to prepare for, for sort of hiring me because uh, otherwise she'll leave the bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this was very unbeknownst mm. to me. Um, but so, and that actually... They had a plan for you. you yeah. Know? That's yeah. very cool. It's super cool. And that actually ended up hap happening. <laughs> <laughs> so after like a, a year, I started to talk to the investment management company and uh, there was a position in the index and solutions team. Um, so I started as like a fixed income um, sidekick to this wonderful person who's a fixed income portfolio manager. Mm. Um, and then after a while, the, the team lead uh, resigned. Um, and I was asked if I wanted to take that position. Um, and it was the first time I was a manager. So it took me like six months to dare to say I'm the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was really, really fun to be an index uh, portfolio manager because you have some trades that you can do very, very small, keeping your clients safe. But there are some things that you can do to, to create small, small alpha that can compensate for the fee that we have to take to sort of cover for our salaries and, and systems and, and trading costs. And now we use the word alpha a couple of times. So maybe explaining what what is alpha. Yes. <laughs> so beta is typically um, following the market market index. Yes. And and alpha is is what is sort of over um, after you deduct the the performance of the market index. So alpha is everything above yeah. index. Yeah. And everything below, I guess. <laughs> we don't want to know about. Yeah. That's that's your friend's algorithm. <laughs> you, you never beat the index anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's so frustrating. So he, he, he was, yeah. was alpha, beta, was gamma, gamma, right? Yeah. So he had gamma. Index. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we don't want to have gamma indexes. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm a super interesting, and and I guess you know working in the bank industry. Um, it's interesting, but also has some challenges, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's these kind of big companies. It's hard to, to perhaps, you know, have, have a kind of innovative um, working environment. Uh, and you're basically driving the, the data-drivenness in, in SEB now, right? Yeah, or? yeah, or, or very much sort of focused on machine learning and visualization. I have yeah. we have other people in in the team that sort of do data management and data governance and data quality and all of those things. Mm. Um, so we're more kind of the, the I don't know creative um, support that can mm. help to create some sort of business value. But how has that journey been? I mean, you've been there ten years. Do you think it's easier today to be more innovative, to be more data driven, to use AI to a larger extent than previously? Mm, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, for myself, when I was a fund manager, um, my colleague and I got frustrated that there was this sort of mantra going on that it costs like hundreds of millions of crowns to create AI systems and we can never do that. Google is going to take over or some other tech company and, and we just need to like, <laughs> I don't know, give, give up. Die. Yeah. And, and so my, my colleague is also a fund manager and we got a bit frustrated. We're both kind of math geeks. Mm. Um, so then we built, uh, 
recommender engine uh, just to like showcase that it's actually possible to do. Mm. And we did Skunk that. work even. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. Um, so we had something called the innovation lab inside the bank at the time. Mm. Um, and that was kind of, you could come with an idea, you pitched it, and then you got like, I think six weeks plus six weeks to create something. Mm. Um, and that's what we did. <laughs> we signed up and then we we're like, yeah, we called awesome. it Sebflex. <laughs> uh, Sebflex. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I wanted to do like much more sort of, uh, big data stuff. Um, it was sort of starting to hype a little bit. And I said that I would really like to at least get some time to just do some research and, and mm. start to analyze what the benefits would be. Um, but I wasn't allowed to because mm. I was an index fund manager. Uh, uh, so then I decided to do something different. Um, and I realized that I like skiing. Um, so initially I signed up to be the senior risk manager for private banking because they have an office in Geneva. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> The reasoning here is awesome. <laughs> I, I love it. Mm. Completely rational. Completely rational. Yeah. Skiing is better. Yeah. Uh, so I and then, but like six months into that position, the head of counterparty risk modeling quit, um, and my my friend and colleague asked me if if I would be willing to apply for that position, and I somehow forgot about the skiing, <laughs> <laughs> and so I yeah. So then I started working with that. So it's sort of counterparty risk is. You have to keep track of the derivatives portfolio of your clients in case they go bankrupt. We need to know how much we need to repay. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of an inverse almost. Mm. Um, right. And there's a lot of math in that because there's a lot of Monte Carlo simulations. Mm. You just don't put a minus sign before the other algo. <laughs> it's like not friendly, you know, to do that. So it didn't work that well. But, yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's a it's a very important part that we keep track of of that risk in our por portfolio. Yeah. But can we be a little bit um, concrete on a couple of different levels now? Because I, I'm curious to understand how this works. Okay, your role right now yeah. as a group data scientist, H how is this organized in, in, in uh, SAB? Because I think a lot of enterprises uh, trying to find their feet, yeah. how to look uh, federated or not and like this. So how, is the, how does it work a little bit more concrete? Mm -hmm. uh, so concretely, um, there's 11 people in my team. Mm -hmm. um, and we exist to support different parts of the bank when they mm -hmm. have some data that they want us to look at. Okay. Um, the the sort of maturity level of different parts of the organization it's is spread. very different. Yeah, of course. Um, so in some parts we have uh, kind of resident data scientists that yeah. already work in that part. The more uh, mature. Yeah. And, and we might have some places where we have quants that could become data scientists within like six months. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're interested, the kind of data science community is there for that purpose so that we mm -hmm. can find areas that people want to learn together or have reading groups or everything mm -hmm. is possible. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, so that's sort of organizationally, I think it works well in, in SEB um, because for me, what's kind of specific about SEB is that I think that there's 15,000 employees and I think that there's 15,000 entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So every single person has their own sort of idea of what we should be doing. And most of them are really, really engaged, really sort of energetic. Um, and I think it's so, I, I, nothing makes me happier than when someone has a great idea or just an idea. It doesn't have to be great. It's just like you have an idea, you voice it and someone listens to you. That's very empowering. Hmm. Um, so in some areas we have sort of completely self-driven strategies where they're doing data management and governance and everything uh, themselves and they're excelling. Um, other areas we have, 
people doing algorithmic sort of stuff. Uh, and if they get stuck, they can always contact us and, mm -hmm. and we have like a sounding board more. Mm -hmm. um, and then areas where they don't even know what the possibilities are. So then you step in and be more active. Yeah. And, and how is this, org you know, where, who are you organized under? Or how, you know, in, in, in SAP, how does it work? Where, yeah. where do you sit in the organization? Um, so I currently, um, I, I and the chief data officer and the, the sort of, uh, domain lead for data and processes, uh, we report to Martin Johansson, mm -hmm. um, who's a senior advisor to the CEO. Okay, so, so you're not part of the <laughs> IT organization as such, uh, well, or, or is this part of IT? How does it work? Uh, no, he's not. So uh, we used to be part of technology, and I think mm -hmm. in some sense we still are. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's very unclear where you should place the data scientist exactly. organization, because and there, once again, I think it needs to depend on on the context on the, of yeah, the company. Yeah, the context and the culture. Um, because I think data scientists are not tech people, necessarily. I think data scientists are, in some cases, they should be much closer to business. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a lot of data scientists in the business mm -hmm. uh, divisions. And in some cases, it's almost like a, a machine learning engineer um but there's a gray zone um and and they there you could very well have some of them working in in more of the technology um division the classical convey then diagram here yeah. yes you know, <laughs> we talked about this quite a bit there, there was seven, the, the convey diagram if you go there first and then mm -hmm. understanding also data scientist what's the difference between a machine learning engineer versus data mm -hmm. scientist mm -hmm. advanced analytics versus mlops Yep. You know, I think those small intricate differences is quite important to start to learn about yep. because it has impact on how we organize. So maybe which one we should, you know, if we want to go there or? Yeah, yeah just briefly, you know, they have this classical Venn di diagram that basically have three parts, which is the theoretical part, the engineering part, and some kind of domain expertise. Mm. And a data scientist needs to know everything. And, and there yeah. is no such person. No. <laughs> And, uh, so we, no we end up that we need cross-functional teams to excel, right? Yeah. yeah. And then how to organize this smartly, which is, of course, when we have nobody, it's maybe better to have them centrally and then and then you can embed them more and more. But to embed a data scientist and they have no knowledge of how to use a data scientist is really hard. Yeah. I'm yeah. just speaking about organization. I think this is an important topic that I think a lot of companies can you know, think about and learn from, but but you can think about different ways to organize data science teams. One one is to have a central team only and, and just do that. And, and then everyone, everyone goes through that till, uh, as soon as you want to do something data and AI type of process. Um, or you can go the other extreme, which is everything is embedded and, and the data scientist is a part of a, some kind of product team or finance team or whatever sales team. And, and they help them in different ways. And I think both have pros and cons, mm -hmm. but some, you know, what's your thought about this? How can we find, you know, the best type of organization to, to really accelerate AI throughout an organization? Mm. The million dollar question. <laughs> it is um, one of them. Yeah. No, but uh, so uh, I think depending on the culture of the organization, if it's very sort of people listen to the top management and they just execute on what they're told to do, then probably the, the central team is going to be the best one. Mm. Whereas if, if you have more of a decentralized organization where people don't necessarily do what they're told to, <laughs> um, then you might need to have more um, people um, in, the, in the different divisions or business areas. Um, but I think there's, there's one aspect that you lose if you do completely decentralized, and that's the governance part. Mm, yeah. um, that's the kind of ethical framework that you want your algorithms to, to move around. That's nice. all of the sort of 
how should we be deploying stuff? You're, you're going to end up with as many different solutions as you have humans uh, in worst case, and and that won't scale. Um, so in, in there, there are some parts where it's kind of comply or die, uh, and some parts where you can be as creative as you want to. But, but, and I think this this is a super important topic, and and it has a huge, you know. Context is also how large the enterprise is mm. and how many business domains you have and stuff like this. But I, I, working at Vattenfall and working in uh, working a lot with Scania right now, I, I can tell you both very decentralized cultures. A central culture will never work. You need to be very very close to the main problem to solve it. On the other hand, if we want to truly share data and do the contextual funky data stuff, you know you kind of need to have your central frameworks so you can basically use the data so then the federated approach something what i think i hear between the mm. r- mm-hmm. I, i've been the most closest to this one and, so, and also it's a little bit like it's it's about the federation because we are decentralized but it's also about the maturity where do you start and where do you want it to end up so i think it's a beautiful model that you are describing that if you go for it and i couldn't be more happier if you mm-hmm. can graduate from the central team into an embedded team when they are ready to take you on mm-hmm. yeah so it sounds pretty smart. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a hybrid approach. I, I, and I right? think this is very, very important to understand mm-hmm. uh, that, that um, in the large enterprise, the fundamental problem to do really, really cool stuff will be how will I get the data that is produced in one domain team to flow to the other team? Okay. How, so then even if we are working with data products or analytical products out here, we kind of need to have the same data catalog, right? We kind of need to have some of the fundamentals that basically makes data sharing possible in a safe way and in a s- fast way. So yeah. that I, I, I can't get away from that, okay? But, and then, okay, building central monoliths, uh, it's not really going to work either, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have a hard time not ending up sort of in this neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. I mean data catalog to some extent, I guess. Um, the, that was I, an example, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to humble brag. I was at MIT last year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so cool. I was invited to a panel um, at this wonderful conference called CDOIQ. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like chief data an- analytics officers, I guess. I guess I'm that. And chief data officers and just people who work with data in, in big organizations in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a it's really, really good. It's um, it's um, yeah, it was founded by Richard Wang, who's like one of the absolute leaders within sort of data organizations, mm-hmm. uh, and he's the coolest guy ever. He's like really, really, really nice and really happy all the time. <laughs> uh, so it, it gives a lot of energy to talk to him. Um, and there, uh, a lot of the people were talking about exactly this, like when even when it comes to your data, you need to kind of structure it in in sort of. In, in different levels. So you have kind of the, the group common information that you need in order to be able to connect different things. Um, and then you have the, the sort of less group common, but probably business common um, data sets. And then you have the sort of funky stuff that I use to look at sustainability for, for Inner Mongolia and that's it. Super niche. Yeah. And, and maybe we don't start there. <laughs> uh, so it, it is very sort of, even there, it's it's quite good to have like a, the same kind of hybrid approach where you have individuals that actually work in the business that love data um, and you allow them to, to work with the data uh, over time so that they, they do all the quality and cataloging and stuff. And then you just need to figure out how, how to make them, just need to figure out how to make them connect to each other. <laughs> so in short, um, would you agree with the central team can govern the data and the processes and, and the best practices in a good way, but what really also make it scale throughout the companies to have 
like AI enabled teams or domain yeah. experts, right? Yeah. You need both. Yeah. You kind of need both. Yeah. And 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 then it becomes what role does a central team play mm. versus the local team because some mm. so when you if you if you really think that we all mature then the central team is more about serving and having the frameworks and having the methodologies and less about building the data product that's happening somewhere else yeah but in the beginning you can you probably need to help build the data product as well yeah yeah exactly and i would say that since it's such a it's such a big area and it moves so fast mm-hmm. i would say that there's also the kind of the need to keep track of what's going on out there. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. almost like the, the yeah, just keeping track of, of what a researcher is talking about, what kind of algorithms are, are trending right now, um, what kind of technology is there that we could look into applying. So this on. is another mission for the central team yeah. to, to really get the best of the best in yeah. and then diffuse it out in the community. Yeah, yeah. get the best of the best in, but also encourage um, individuals in the organization uh. that aren't necessarily in the group team to also be curious and, and to, to be able to funnel that information to each other. Yeah, but then you also highlight that the central team has actually a responsibility to manage and maintain the community. Yeah. That's a key topic in itself. Yes. The humans. Uh, <laughs> humans. And thinking more about, you know, how to be data-driven, but perhaps also data or AI-driven in a company like SAB, uh, I guess we could talk about like AI strategies or if they have some yes. kind of well-thought-out plan from an yeah. organizational point of view to start with at least. AI strategies. Yes. Next um, topic. <laughs> Love it. Do is there such a strategy, or is it? Uh, do you have in SAP some kind of idea of what what the strategy should be to accelerate AI in SAP? Yeah. Um, so we did some work on that last year, um, and I think we found quite a. I didn't realize it at the time, but someone told me that it's brilliant. Um, and it wasn't just my idea. There was a, a big working group of, of experts uh, doing this, but we've decided to have a strategy that that's simple. The strategy is just that we integrate into the business plan. Um, so we uh, have okay. the business but, but strategy. Um, explore that a bit more. What, what do you mean? Yeah. So you have the business strategy. People yeah. are used to doing their, their sort of yearly planning. Um, they have a good process for that. They do that. And what we want to add now um, is that once they're done with that, they think about what data do we need in order to mm-hmm. actually achieve our business strategy. As a normal part of yeah. building the business yeah. strategy, you also yeah. consider data and AI. Yeah, it's like a small add-on. It's like, okay, so what data mm-hmm. do we need in order to be, I don't know, better at something? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, okay, so are there any kind of machine learning things that we should be doing? Um, is there some sort of an AI system that we could look into acquiring or, or using in order to accelerate the, the business plan even further? Um, so it could be like uh, one of our aims is to create operational excellence. Mm. Um, and that means that we want to increase efficiency. We want to use our data in better ways or new more ways. Um, and we want to uh, create like um, processes that are as lean as possible. Mm. And in there, you can just start to feel how many different kinds of algorithms you could so, be applying. So what is the AI perspective of, of reaching that business strategy? Yeah. So the AI, that specific um, business strategy, I would say that it's a lot about adding smartness to, to automation, for instance. Yeah. Um, it's a lot about actually focusing on, um, yeah, removing as many manual processes as possible, but, but like identifying areas where it's finding the probabilities in 100 all the time. <laughs> um, so it's very much that um, in that specific area. Um, then when it comes to like advisory excellence, then you have all the different kinds of advices that you want to give the clients and and all of the sort of recommender engine-ish uh, uh, perspectives. So you, but, but, but this really resonates with me. And, and 
personally, I've had a quite hard time when I hear the management consultants talk about uh, you need your AI strategy in order to work. And, and, and in Vattenfall, we actually made on, on, on group level, on, on the presentation to the board, we, we made a declaration that is going very closely in this direction. We say uh, there is no AI strategy. There's only business strategy attuned for a AI ready world. Mm. You know, so so it, I think it's exactly the same that we need to start with the business problem we are trying to solve, and then understand the AI applications out of that. Mm-hmm. Of course, then someone will argue, ah, oh, but what's your tactics to implement or to mature AI? That's what we mean with strategy. Do you have something like that? More like how to, but you're more pushing it that we really need to find the business problem that could work, or yeah, because what is an AI strategy? I mean, like start even there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say that probably in the AI strategy, it's important to like identify what areas will be relevant for for financial services. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we never, I hope, yeah, probably we never want to do facial recognition because that wouldn't make sense for us. Um, probably uh, sort of self-driving cars, eh, not sure that's going to be our <laughs> core product uh, going forward. Uh, so I think it's very much that sort of uh, identifying what areas we believe would be beneficial for, for the business strategy um, and for the business as a whole. I don't know if that's... But, but you said something earlier before. Um, oh, we actually, we can... Uh, you had some insights into the AI strategy of Finland. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a... If we segue from SAP as an organization and think more nationally... Mm. But still AI strategy, but you yeah. said something to us bef- you know, before the camera was on. Mm. Components of what makes it successful yes. is also something about Down. AI strategy without... you know. So maybe we could go here. Yep. Because you do have a Finnish background as well, yes. and Finland has their AI strategy, and Sweden has, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I think so it, let's Finland <laughs> is ahead. Let's put it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think definitely. Um, so I met with a, a person who was working with the AI strategy of Finland um, when I was there a couple of years ago. Um, I go home more often than twice <laughs> every second year. Um, so I, I met with him and, and we were kind of discussing um, what the work entailed that they did and, and what he, because uh, he was re- very proud of the work that they've done. And and I completely agree. I think what, what they came up with in the AI strategy, it's very crisp. There's a clear financing for it. There's a clear sort of focus and, and the kind of centers that they created for the AI strategy to be enabled. Um, they were given some sort of power um, to actually uh, force other parts of the society to change. Um, and I think like one of the first things they did was that they funded this like AI, I guess, recommender system for life, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where you can come in and, and you sort of describe your, your life situation. And then you get all of the different governmental benefits that you can get. You get all the rules that you need to adhere to. You Super get like cool. a, a really good sort of What feeling. a simple product. Yeah. And, and quite often the simplicity is, is where, where the keys lie. And I think it was really smart to do that as the first part of the AI strategy because you're, you're winning some, some positive emotion from, from the citizens of the, right. the country as well. You're building something that's immediately beneficial for them. So it becomes less scary. But there is a couple of things, sorry. I mean, like the, here we have an AI strategy, but actually the way they frame it is also, it's a little bit strategy to execution. Yeah. That was the financing behind it. Like, can we, can we please put some action behind behind the words and some resources behind the words? Mm. So in this sense, I guess to formulate an AI strategy with substance uh, is quite interesting what they've done in mm. Finland. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, 
from an organizational perspective, the budget would be expected to follow the business plan. Yes. Uh, whereas from a governmental perspective, um, it's that? it's steered in such a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually need to have like a proper f- focused budget um, for for building a center where you do AI and and you exist in order to educate others on AI and but that's the, but that, that's maybe the downside of the problem cash 22 with having a business centric AI strategy if the business is not so data savvy mm. so they can formulate AI opportunities yeah but then you need to help them a lot there I guess yeah we do <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I think we I mean we're trying to to not build huge organizations anymore. Um, we're trying to much more create sort of ambassadors and mm-hmm. and people who just fall in love with some topic and giving them the time to learn a little bit about it and and become sort of the internal spokespeople. Yeah, evangelists um, style. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Mm-hmm. Evangelists or just super nerdy people who have no communication skills but are really interested. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, it's, it's more that. Um, you don't need to be like a, yeah. Mm. And moving a bit to Sweden, then, you know, we have met a number of times in, in various events and especially the AI agenda work, yeah. I think, that you were a central part of as well. And uh, perhaps can move a bit into to the AI agenda. Can can you speak to a bit about, you know, what is the purpose and what has been done and things like that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the AI agenda is coordinated by, by RISE. Um, I think in the beginning we were kind of... Uh, discussing the the issue with not having an AI strategy in Sweden. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we have something in Sweden called nationell inriktning. I think yeah, it's yeah, called, yeah. but it's not backed by budget. So, what is an, what is a national AI strategy? How, how would we frame it? What, what do we think that consists of? Because I, you can have inriktning. You know, for me, it's a little bit fluffy. What do we mean with an AI strategy for a comp- for, for, for for? Let's start there. The AI agenda. What's the purpose and what? For me, it. Well, I can, you can fill in that, but you know, at least having a strategy that is backed by some funding and some action points. So, so basically, strategy rates. cannot uh, only be words; it needs to be backed with fundamentals, like funding. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't have a strategy. Mm. So, so words or a report without funding is not an AI strategy, is it? That's just the report. It's just yeah. a report, right? Uh, so <laughs> many reports, <laughs> but there are good reports, though. So, so the so definition of a proper yeah. AI strategy is that it has to be it's, it's, it's a, uh, something a direction, but uh, there is substance to execute on it. Otherwise, it's not really a strategy. Yeah. Or I would say so. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think so too. I mean, if you look at like some of the the country's AI strategies, um, France's is probably the craziest one because it's written by a mathematician. It's super cool. Um, but G- Germany's is is sort of really focused on the o- automotive industry because mm. that's the the main sector for Germany. Mm-hmm. And and then they speak a lot about what they don't want people to do within that area and what they think people should be doing like within the AI um, area. Um, Finland is quite the same. It's like it's really well sort of defined these areas we believe AI is beneficial for these areas we believe that we should be focusing on them and here's money and here's the the possibility to build and both private sector and public sector like a a, a state AI strategy needs to have a view on how to support private and public maybe 
Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, they created something similar to AI Sweden, but I think with a bit more punch, potentially. Mm. <laughs> not because it's AI Hub or something, or what's yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And and this has not. I'm not saying in any way whatsoever mm. that the people working in AI Sweden, they're very very confident. I'm mm. talking about the budget. Um, just uh, be clear. No, just to mention France, I think they've done a number of awesome things, and, and Germany and UK as well mm. with the sector deal and whatnot. But but tell us a little bit. Because but, I but this math- mathematicians. Instead. Yeah, tell us about this story because it's, I don't think uh, so many Cedric, people. Cedric uh, Villani, yeah, right? Yeah. And I remember he actually came to AI Sweden once and, and spoke. And then we had some you Swedish. You missed that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he, he was very inspiring and uh, it's uh, yeah, it was really fun to listen to him. Mm. And you can tell he's very knowledgeable, of course, as well. But what, what, so, but what's the twist here? Like, educate us on what's the France strategy in a nutshell. So how is it different when a mathematician writes it? It's 300 pages. You <laughs> <laughs> go nerdy, right? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And a lot of funding. I think yeah. it's up to like 3 billion euros or something. It's, uh, it's a lot of money. Um, but yeah, but the AI agenda then, I, I think, you know, we shouldn't, you know, complain about the Swedish approach a lot. I think we ha- are doing a lot of good things, yeah. um, especially in, in the latest times. Yeah. Uh, that are moving in a very good direction, I think. Yeah. And, and just speaking about the AI agenda uh, a bit more. So it started for a year ago or something? Or yeah, something. I think that we had like the formal kickoff in Almedalen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, so we, we decided to split it up into different work streams. Um, one of them was was industry. Uh, thinking about like the the potential of of AI applications in industry, and I was the workstream coordinator, and mm. you were part of that workstream, yep. giving very good and valid uh, <laughs> suggestions you. and advice. One, um, uh, one more glass of wine to her, yeah, please, sir. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, and then like research and education and uh, infrastructure and um, sort of the public space and and us as citizens. Um, and I think it's been a really cool journey because in the beginning there was maybe not so many people, um, mm. and then it's it's a completely open collaboration. So whoever is interested is kind of invited to join uh, a relevant work stream where you feel that you can sort of contribute. Um, and I think for me personally, the the biggest sort of eye opener um, was when Elin Alsjok joined our team. Um, oh, yeah. So she comes from this Stoltetsbyrån. She doesn't have a specific background in AI, um, but she very much brought in sort of the the human aspects. Um, and I hadn't realized how how geeky we were because <laughs> it was just people working with AI in the in the industry work stream. Uh, and I think getting Ellen in and, and her questioning us very friendlyly um, about what we were talking about, uh, I think it was really good in order to make the AI agenda pedagogical because, mm. I mean, it's meant to be for everyone. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you agree. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, an, yeah, I'm a very geeky person as well, so it's, it's so hard sometimes to have the bigger picture mm. and be able to commun- communicate it in, in proper terms, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, like how to communicate it in a, in a good, good pedagogical way without dumbing down the real complexity, mm-hmm. you know, n- not simplifying in the wrong way. I mean, yeah. this is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we started for over a year ago. We had a number of groups. We put together this kind of report presentation. It was presented to the Swedish parliament, right? Yeah. And it's going to Brussels now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's really fun. Cool. Yeah, so it's like I think there's like fifty people or something in in the collaboration, mm. and and people with completely different backgrounds, completely different interests. We have the trade unions are part of it, so it's it's really this wonderful opportunity to have very sort of 
high level and deep discussions about what we should be doing with AI in Sweden mm. and, and kind of identifying areas that, that we believe that we should change in some way or would benefit in from doing things in, in other ways than we do them today. Mm. And I think the, the so the kind of current result of that uh, is that we have um, and a concrete AI agenda. It's a, it's, it exists as a physical document. Mm-hmm. A manifesto um, almost. Yeah, yeah, uh, almost. And, and, and a web page. Yeah, and a web page. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really good for, for like, I mean, there, there's a lot of opinion making going on about AI. Mm-hmm. And some of it is very detrimental because it's not based on facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's quite nice to have this document that anyone who wants to, for instance, respond to an EU white paper or wants to uh, lobby or talk to people about the the potential um, possibilities with AI, you have this document and and it's not for signing, um, it's for using. Mm. um, And it's probably going to change over time as well. And we also have this list of action points, which I think is important. You know, yes. if you want to have some kind of strategy that actually can be executed, yeah. Yeah. like a set of, I think it's 28 different uh, yeah. suggestions that we have provided so far. Yeah. Which I think and how, how in really practice, good. so th- there's some, f- I mean, like how, who is funding it or how do we fund the, the actual work gets done? Or is it all on, on voluntary? Pay? I, I, have no, I don't know the background. I mean, it's both in kind, of course, from a lot of companies, both in industry and academia and public sector. Um, but uh, it's otherwise financed by Vinova, of course. Yeah, Vinova. The, the government-based innovation agency. So um, it has some proper funding. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's just important and great that we do, did recognize that the problem mm-hmm. and are executing on it. And in a rather short period of time, have actually mm-hmm. been able to produce quite a lot of work. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I kind of like the Swedish approach. It's like getting consensus on, <laughs> on different questions, um, but doing it super fast. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. I'm kind of hesitating if we should go to the EU sector and all the white oh, we papers. Can, we can go and ask what's the EU AI strategy, or well, then we are done yeah. with this and we leave it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. What do you think? I, I think you should leave it up to Salah uh, if we want to go to EU or not. <laughs> we, do we want to lift the AI strategy to the EU level as well? A couple right. of minutes. Do we have a view on this? Maybe a couple of minutes. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, my my short feeling is that uh, the EU is focusing very much on the ethical implications. Mm. Yeah, um, really. And I, I think in some sense that's it's really good, good because but it brings it up onto the table and potentially that could be um, what makes the EU AI sphere um, okay uh, and maybe survive competition even um, mm. because there's there's something to be said about ethical implications. But we have talked a lot about the AI divide mm. to try to understand what it really means for society. And we have some superpowers and, so, and some are, and, and if we sort of highlight the, the investments and the number of um, research paper coming out or like where the real uh, knowledge is uh, and and there are some different agendas being driven you know, in one agenda in china uh, the agenda is like quite different uh, corporate uh, america and and to find then you know how do we build europe as part of the future and and, and not and, and how do we build our societies to be you know to, 
to shrink the AI divide. And we talk about all the stuff around, yeah. do we need a European cloud or, you know. Mm. I mean, just to, to paint a picture a bit what we mean with AI divide yes. and, and then to hear what you think about, you know, how, yes. how can we do it from a Swedish and European point of view? And one view that a lot of people are speaking about is that you as a China are so far ahead and it's no point, as you said before, to even try because, <laughs> yeah. well, go home and die. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, of course, a really, really strange attitude but to have. And we think it's really scary, right? Because yeah. it's segregating the world in a very scary way. But the AI divide can be defined, I think, differently. I think it's wrong to say it's like the whole country of US or the whole country of China that is leading. I, it's really rather the tech giants. It's the Google, the Facebook, the Microsoft, the Amazons. Yeah. Or what the do we Alibaba call it now? We don't call it, uh, we got a new word. A GAFA or the latest is uh, Fat. Fatman. No, yeah, <laughs> Fatman. Have you heard <laughs> the new one? Yeah, no? Fatman, yeah, right, right. The, the, so what's the acronym for the tech giants? Fatman, yeah. Facebook, Alphabet, Alphabet, you know, but it's just like, <laughs> someone, a that was a, I don't yeah. know if it was a joke, but Fatman is the new one. There's been a number of acronyms for the tech giants, in short, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, keeps coming new ones all the time. But, but it is a big problem. I don't think people realize how far ahead the tech giants are, and the Google and the Facebook and the Tencents and Alibabas and Baidu and whatnot. Um, And then the question is really, uh, what should we do about it? And why, one way, you know, you can show what the most valuable companies in the world are today. And it is the tech giants, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, in any, if you, even if you take any kind of sector, oil, finance and whatnot, it yeah. is the tech giants that are the most valuable companies of all. But then if you look at Europe and you take the top 10 most valuable companies, there is not a single tech company. Mm-hmm. It's oil companies, it's finance companies, it's automotive companies but no like tech company in mm. that sense. And it's a bit scary. And I think we need to do something. For one, do, do you agree with the concept of AI divide and that it potentially is a problem, you would say? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, I, I saw today in Financial Times that Facebook has been sued by, by I think it was 46 states in the US um, for violating mm. sort of um, a lot of laws when it comes to I mean, the acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram. Mm. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there um, because they, I mean, they have such an information um, advantage yeah. um, to any other company in the world. Um, and, and the question is whether that's a good thing. Mm. Uh, and I think it's it's good that they're finally starting to to look into that from like a legal standpoint. I mean, the US is very different from the EU because you don't, I mean, the the legal landscape is defined by um, by verdicts. Hmm. And it's not like here Case where law. we spend strokey beard time thinking mm-hmm. about what kind of law we need for this area. And then we have consensus and then <laughs> we have a very different way of working in, in the EU. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, for one, it's the antitrust kind of case where, mm-hmm. where you have this big companies, but I think it's more than that. It's like a democracy kind of question when a company can direct basically the opinions of a lot of people like Facebook can, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I met with um, Christopher Wiley uh, a couple of years ago at this event mm-hmm. and I sort of attacked him with a thousand questions. <laughs> and Christopher Wiley. I think he was a bit scared by me. He's the, he was the head of analytics at Cambridge Analytica. Oh, great. Um, and he, Fun position to have. Yeah, he decided to and, go. And, uh, in, the middle of it, in the middle of it all, mm. you had the opportunity to talk to... No, the, no, it was after, after, after. He, re- he resigned. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so he worked, works, uh, or worked at that time. He was uh, working for H&M um, oh. as like a, a researcher for, for sort of identifying what they shouldn't be doing. What they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. 
And I think that's really cool. Um, but he had a lot of uh, really interesting opinions about that. Like, because uh, I asked him, like, uh, does he think that GDPR um, has has changed the landscape for, for these tech companies? And he said, no. No. Mm-hmm. And um, we say the same. Like, yeah. GDPR is actually right now increasing the AI divide. Because yeah. if you're super knowledgeable, you know how to work around it. Very professional. You know, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, the intent, you can super... Yeah. Circumvent the I mean, the big tech giants have the legal resources. They have the and the competence so how they to do it. Know how to comply with the regulation, yeah. Yeah. but and most other the, companies don't. And yeah. we who, and the rest who doesn't really know what it means, you get scared. Yeah. And it's really only benefit. GDPR is benefiting fat man more than anyone. Yeah, in my yeah, opinion. I think so. Yeah, I remember uh, a Finnish Swedish CEO for another bank uh, saying that he loves regulations because it sort of uh, it kills uh, competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. not going to name his name because uh, that would be probably slander. But, but, but <laughs> when we so back now, so context and AI divide. What should Europe do? Or, and mm. from this perspective, what is our AI strategy all about? Yeah. And and it, it, to some degree, maybe we should use pumping money to build the European cloud. I don't I don't know. But some, then we say, come on, you will never be able to do it in the same way. So what, what you know? What is the AI strategy in Europe? What it should be, and what is really important? I don't know. Yeah, I think I mean, I think one central part is the infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. That is somewhere that we're sort of losing to yeah. national competition in other um, nations in the world. What do you mean, I mean like 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 the cloud uh, vendors? We, what yeah. do you mean with infrastructure? Yeah, yeah. I mean the the cloud vendors. I mean, um, what do I mean? Uh, I mean the cloud vendors. I mean the sort of computational um, power, power doesn't necessarily have to be even a cloud. It can just be like a lot of servers. But uh, I, yeah. So now we are in, <laughs> investing in HPC, right? Yeah, uh, in Europe. Yep. Interesting choice as well. Yeah. And Finland is leading the way there, yeah. by yeah. the way, with Lume and the new mm-hmm. big uh, data cluster from oh, in, in Europe. HMC. Nvidia stuff, right? Or no? Yes. Yeah, no. It's, well. it's there as well. So it's, it's yeah. kind of super, super part of. Uh, but and, and here, of course, is HPC the right way to pump money into, or is it something <laughs> else we should do? Maybe we should build our own big data cloud. Yeah. Maybe. I think we could just go all in on Raspberry Pis. <laughs> <laughs> We just need to be really smart at coding the algorithms, mm-hmm. and then we can build really Federated sustainable algorithms. Federated exactly. learning, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and a couple of ideas that have been floating around is with some of the guests is like, well, maybe we can't compete on the general public cloud, but maybe we could make make super niche the best of the best for automotive or the best of the best type of here's the place you want to be if you're in pharma, something like this. Yeah. So you take the public cloud, but you make it something else that fits sort of Europe. Yeah. You know, used to make another play. Mm. But, but seriously, if you were to think about perhaps not SEB because it's a big company, they have their own infrastructure and an AI strategy, which most other companies yeah, don't. So, <laughs> so they're a good example in that case. But for a lot of other companies that want to get started with data and AI, there are a lot of problems. You know, mm. just access to data or infrastructure to, to process it properly and, and whatnot, and, and all the, the you know knowledge needed to actually know what to do and how to build models and so forth. So if you were to guide, I mean, you've been working with this for a long time. Uh, and if someone wants to get started quickly, how, how would you recommend like a Swedish company to get more onto track to be data driven and AI driven? Um, good question. I think I would recommend identifying individuals that are already doing machine learning in their spare time, because I can guarantee yeah. you that there's at least one person in your organization, yeah. no matter how nice. small, yeah. um, because it's so much fun. Yeah. And then I would start small. 
Um, I think the the key is to not start with all of your data and uh, building the full infrastructure and all the solutions that you need. Yeah. Uh, quite often, it's like the the simplest first model that that gives oh, the most. I love, I love you. We love you already. <laughs> <laughs> and it's how can we get the enterprises to understand? Start with one use case and try to understand that data. And everybody who thinks they can take all data at once, they don't understand what they're go- going through. Yeah. You will yeah. never succeed. Yeah. Why do yeah. we do it in the big enterprises? Why do we start in this way? I think it's because it's the way that enterprises used to be driven. Mm. Uh, it was like this huge ship. And then mm. in order to, you needed to, sh- to turn the whole ship. <laughs> so so to, to do lean startup or mm. to do innovation mm. inside a big enterprise, how to s- think about that, how to make mm. that machinery scale. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, I love you know. It, it's so common that we hear other companies say, "We need to first get the hold of analytics. We need to first build the pipelines. <laughs> yeah. We need to first have the dashboards. You know, we can't no, use AI." Until I need to. We cl- have I that. need to clean all data yes. <laughs> before we start. <laughs> uh, good luck with that. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I have this uh, small funky data here. I'll, I'll come back in two years. <laughs> we don't know what it's about, but it's probably important. <laughs> But but how do you get around that? I'm like, okay, so no, but I, I like think she said a good answer for that. But, you know, but, start small and, and you know use the thing you have and, and find the data that you potentially have today and, and start experimenting. So we love skunk work almost. Yeah, I guess so. I do. <laughs> I love skunk work. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, it's so much fun. Mm. Um, yeah. And you know, we sometimes use the term you know analytical ladder and uh, you know s- taking step by step until you oh at the one point you start using AI and, and it's kind of a dangerous view to have, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> you heard okay. about the analytical yeah. ladder. Yeah. Okay, yeah. perhaps it's time for, yeah, for the next <laughs> topic. But awesome to, to hear uh, that you think um, in this way. I think that's a really good advice. I certainly agree a lot with that. You know, coming back before we leave math, I think uh, we spoke a bit about uh, math before and I started to speak about some kind of philosophical kind of questions about. And, and yeah, I the think beauty of math. The Let's beauty of math. And, and there is this, you know, quote from uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant, you know, philosopher, he basically says that, um, is it a thing in itself? So the question is then, is math a thing in itself? And I guess one way to phrase it is, do you discover math or do you invent math? Is it something that already exists that you discover or mm. do you actually create math? What do you think? Mm. That's such a good question. I think as an individual... I think, yeah, I think you, as an individual, if you like mathematics, you discover it as you go along. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm reminded of this. Uh, I was taking a course for my supervisor, and I think this was probably the point when I decided I wanted to do whatever I could to do a thesis for her. Mm -hmm. Um, She had, uh, it was a course in complex analysis, and there was an engineering student who wanted to know how to calculate the residue of something. Um, and, and she said, oh, oh, I don't remember. And then she started from scratch. Mm-hmm. She was like, okay, okay, so F is a function. And then she started doing the whole calculation to understand what the residue was. And I remember the engineer being like, oh my God, she's so stupid. She doesn't even know the answer. Whereas for me, this was the right way of doing it. It's like, if you're a, a really good theoretical math- mathematician. You derive, um, you derive it. Yeah, you can derive kind of anything yeah. from just like the, the, the axioms that define what a point is and a line is. And from there, it's like, it's this beautiful world that just unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and just a bit more philosophical things. If you take like um, 
the Gödel Fork. I'm not sure if you're familiar with no, it. Um, uh, it. It was this kind of thing where a lot of mathematicians were really upset in the 1930s or something because he proved that an, an, uh, mathematics is not complete and consistent. And, uh, ah, but it's, is it's, this? It's, it's similar to the halting problem, if, if you heard about that. So, no, sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so Alan Turing defined this kind of thing where you basically he could mathematically prove that it's impossible to to uh, prove that if a computer program will halt mm. or not yeah. in some way. And, and he d- does that by simply having this kind of self-reference kind of thing and, and he can show it's impossible. Mm. And, and uh, basically that was Gödel, uh, Gödel's theory as well. He can easily say that anything that had the right axioms, like the piano axioms or these kind of, if you can define natural numbers, mm. You can show that any kind of language in math that can handle that is either inc- incomplete or inconsistent. Mm. Nice. Um, and that basically means math is incomplete. Yeah. <laughs> and that's very upsetting, right? <laughs> to, to some mathematicians, at least. Right? Sala, please disagree here. We, we, we want argument if you think it's bullshitting or because I can't follow this. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of this. Um, uh, there was this big discussion when... when the Hilbert axioms were created. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the, the axioms was, I think, the, the parallelity axiom. Um, so it says that it's possible to create two lines that are parallel and therefore will never meet. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that if, if, you're, if you treat that as, I mean, if, if you can create a, a universe where that happens, mm-hmm. then there must also exist a universe where they always meet. Mm-hmm. So every single parallel line will meet at some point. Um, and then I think it's quite fun to think about, like, um, I guess it's Einstein who talks about the compactness of, univer- of the universe. Mm. Um, and that would be exactly the explanation to why you could never have two parallel lines that never meet because mm. the universe is compact. So at some stage they will come back. Interesting. It's super interesting. And, and you can continue the discussion from Einstein to quantum theory and, and whatnot and say, you know, is the world really non-deterministic? Something mm. that I have a really hard time accepting. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that or? No, I, I have an anecdote to, <laughs> okay. to come with. Apparently, like just the recent days, there's some Israeli security expert who, who has uh, written a book and he said that aliens exist and we're in touch with them. And there's like a, a council of aliens that humans are part of. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> so we'll see. But I, I, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you said before, I think it's before we started, like um, one of the things that really got you into math or, or, or actually that you stayed in math was the beauty of it. So how would you describe the beauty of math to someone who's not into math? How would you try to put words to what do you mean with that? Yeah. So I think the the further you come into theoretical mathematics, the the more philosophical it becomes. And when you're working in kind of this is going to sound really pretentious when, when you're working in, in higher dimensional places that you can't, I mean, you can draw because you have some sort of intuition about how stuff works, but you can't really see it because it's too many dimensions for you to, to be so able to you, perceive. So you're now talking mathematical dimensions. Yeah. And we, how many dimensions do we perceive? Yeah. Three? Yeah, probably four because four, time. Time, yeah. three, yeah. three plus yeah. time. Something like that. <laughs> um, but I think... And in mathematics, you can... Yeah, you just abstract it to abstract loads it. of different dimensions. And, and as a theoretical math- mathematician, you don't care about those dimensions, what they actually do. You just They just exist. There's like K dimensions. Um, but I think it becomes, I mean, I think my brain is wired so that it feels very calm when it's allowed to think about 
mathematical questions um, because it's like it's filling my brain with a lot of information so that I can, yeah, it's like going into this beautiful world. It's almost meditation. Yeah. But uh, so when you say philosophical, in what way do you think, you know, could you explain that in another way? So is, is it like really you're, like you're getting down to very fundamental questions, I guess, or what do you mean? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because I, I didn't do like hardcore analysis. And if you do that, then it's like sitting and computing very hard and, and trying to be innovative about what kind of tools you could be using to to connect things to. But with geometry, it's you all, <laughs> at some stage, you usually go back to wait. What is the point? And it gets like, what really is the point with the point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to really rely on, on the absolute foundations of the, the sort of reality that you've chosen at some stage. So you get to, you get very soon to a principle level. Yeah. Yeah. So you're fundamentally, what's my principle? And then it becomes values. Do I believe in this principle? Yeah. Do I believe so, that two lines will be parallel or not? So that's the philosophical topic that yeah. at some time, and how can I now prove or disprove this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how can I prove a philosophical theorem at the end? Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. And it's it's very sort of, I feel like it's it, it's very sort of creative. When I look at those of my friends that were PhD students and have stayed in research, a lot of them are very, very sort of cultural. Mm. Um, they're they're very different from, from the sort of stereotypical engineer. Mm. Um, it's very much more sort of almost like creating art. Yeah, so this is the art part of science, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's super, yeah, it's beautiful. Mm, Is there any mathematical art you can buy? (laughs) Yeah, but you you have a passion for data visualization as well. Yeah. And and that can be very connected to art. I remember in Spotify, we we had actually this data art uh, competition. Yes. So it it had a you know a condition that you know you, you can create a beautiful kind of data visualization, but it needs to be some kind of utility. You, you have to at least <laughs> you know understand what it means and, and can interpret something from it, and that limited a bit you know the creative <laughs> aspect of it. But they, they had this kind of amazing kind of you know particle flow kind of visualizations, which looks awesome and uh, super beautiful. And, and I think you know data visualization yeah. is an art form. Yeah. Now I get goosebumps. Was the, who's the guy in H&M? The, he made the presentation at Data Innovation Summit this year. They, they celebrated something. You know, this is, the, this is hardcore applied AI data scientists in H&M. And they made this beautiful um, painting out of uh, They visualize one of the you know, recommender system algorithms. I can't remember. It's actually Spotify and dance with the uh, uh, dance with data. No, dance with data. That yeah. is Spotify. That is, that is from oh, the competitions. Yeah. No, but H&M did something similar. I think I saw it. Sure, they have done that. But yeah. uh, on data innovation with Spotify, mm. for sure. And, <laughs> and then, have you seen have you seen the video graphs uh, representing? I can't remember different types of CNNs. I like uh, mm. Robert Luciani shared something on, on on YouTube, which is sort of some guy out there. Uh, he's quite you know he's got a lot of quite a lot of hits. He's basically doing a, 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 a 3D video rendition of, of the, I can't remember what, it's some sort mm-hmm. of CNN. And what, so it's like, how does it feel to be inside a CNN, right? And it's super cool. I get goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's certainly beautiful. It's I beautiful. Think, I think it's certainly an art form as well. And, and art can actually, I think, be really useful as well. Yes. You know, we have spoken about the definition of art at some uh, point. <laughs> that's a funny one. And you have the best one so far. Uh, uh, okay. With the most, but I think you know, in some way, it's actually wrong. But but you know, I define at some point art as 
work that you have no use for. No, and used to be used to start an argument. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did. But but in some way, I think you know, <laughs> data visualization, which I, you have a number of people in your team that specialize in this as well. Yeah. And you know, being able to visualize, I guess, and have some kind of creative, at, at least, aspects of how to do that is really important. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah. yeah so why why Absolutely. did you really early on decide to have a balanced team with both hardcore scientists and visualization guys? Well, because I, I think if we can't show what we're doing, um, then we failed. Yeah. Um, to communicate as as, yeah. as as one way, yeah, 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 communicate and and explain, explain. and and give like give a sense of transparency as well because mm. when you do that you you can like create a i don't know a dashboard where people can can interact with the different uh features and and you give some t- tweaking opportunities so they can try out different impacts and and they, it's like it's like if you buy a car you probably want to drive around with it a little bit before you buy it because mm. you want to feel how it feels um and machine learning algorithms can sometimes be very abstract for people to sort of understand Look. and then you want to give the driving the car feeling to them Hmm. What's the meaning of life? Look, it, I have it. The album forty-two. <laughs> no, we need to visualize it. I mean, it's more than it's more than pie charts, you know, to to work with data. Right? Yeah, but so but are you using any other technology than the tra- traditional, uh, like some more fancy to 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 visualize big data or something like this? Or can you can you go a far way with like Power BI and the tableaus and, and stuff like that? Or do you need something else? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we use um, a lot of. Yeah, we use a lot of Tableau in in the bank, but we use a lot of other tools as well that are mainly like open source libraries. So in order to really visualize the yeah. big data stuff. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I like to keep a bit on the philosophical track, but move perhaps a bit more into AI. And um, one philosophical question is the singularity. Ah. Uh. And uh, yeah, there is a number of definitions for it. Um, do you have a favorite one or what do you think of when you hear singularity? I, I think of hype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And I think of Thank fear you. mongering. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm yeah, finished. No, no. It's, it's <laughs> nope, certainly true. I like it. I don't hold back. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I, I really think about the the kind of the fear that some people are experiencing and how other people are a little bit irresponsibly taking advantage of that. Mm. Mm. To, to what end do you think? I mean, even if you take people like uh, Stephen Hawkins or Elon Musk or someone, I mean, they use AI more than anyone and, and still mm. they, they claim sometimes that, you know, AI could be the biggest threat to humankind. Yeah. And it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, if you look at all the the manipulative algorithms that have been deployed in social media and that are kind of de- sure, destroying yeah. democracy, uh, that's probably a singularity. <laughs> Hopefully not, but mm-hmm. it's getting close. Um, but then when you look at like the the scaring up people about killer robots, yeah. I'm. I mean, the the physical robots. It's so challenging to to build them. I that's not my fear. My fear is the virtual robots that already have been deployed mm. and that are trying to impact us as humans and, and definitely changing our behavior. But uh, but if I hear you right, it's a little bit like when we get into the uh, age, uh, artificial general intelligence topic of singularity, it's almost like we're losing focus on the real stuff yeah. because we're talking about something that is so, you know, we're not there yet, right? So we, we actually have problems and topics we should think about right now that is more urgent. I mean, like in a little bit like that's what I heard Yes. In between the lines. Yes. I, that's absolutely how I feel. 
And what are they? So what, so, so what should we talk about instead then? So I, I definitely think that we should talk about what Anders also mentioned already with like the, the manipulation that we're being uh, subject to um, when we interact with each other on, on social media. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's really scary that that it's allowed to continue um, to the extent it is allowed to continue. So it's, I'm, I've, sometimes I follow Vetnetskapa Forskning, the Facebook group, mm-hmm. um, and it was quite funny because during the, I think, yeah, during the Swedish, latest Swedish elections, mm-hmm. suddenly a troll came in and started posting these like trolling pictures <laughs> and everyone, it's like a science and research uh, group. Uh, everybody just got really fascinated <laughs> and started like, oh, wow, it's a troll. <laughs> <laughs> so it was not like, like you were <laughs> fooled by it. It was like, let's examine this. <laughs> So I think that I've never really seen a troll before. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They got they came to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That's funny. <laughs> but but moving a bit into to your domain and, and uh, let's say stock markets and whatnot. Uh, I, I sometimes claim that you know you can fear the singularity. You can fear, you know, that at some point we will have a uh, human level intelligence that potentially will you know we will lose control over. But I would claim that even you know narrow intelligence can be sometimes more dangerous. And, and I'm thinking about the stock market now. Mm. And I'm thinking, imagine that it was some kind of system, algorithm that someone invents that simply outperforms everything. Wouldn't that cause another crash potentially, you would think? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there there are quite some good books about sort of the the flash crashes that have been created by mm. by algorithms gone rogue. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at the the, the hedge fund, um, mm-hmm. there was this incident where the stock market absolutely crashed for like a, a half a day or something. It was just, and and you could tell that that something was wrong. And mm-hmm. then, of course, we don't know what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a rumor in the in the market that it was a person in one of the big banks. Um, that was sitting and and try and testing a system and didn't realize that they were actually in production. <laughs> oh, so they suddenly dumped like a billion stock in in some uh, company and that had a large impact on that uh, stock and then you had all the Ripple execution effects. algorithms and the, the stop losses the and everything oh, the went crazy, yeah. So oh. what do you think about that, you know? I at least is more scared about that type of effect of mm. AI sometimes. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have a big economical impact that, that is huge for our society, especially in these corona days, you know, we can see mm. and we'll probably see more in the coming years, you know, what the impact really will be. But how do you fix that? <laughs> <laughs> can you please tell us now, Sada? How do you avoid another uh, stock uh, market crash? <laughs> yeah, don't test in production. <laughs> <laughs> Step one, don't test in production. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's a... It's an interesting phenomenon that the stock market is quite sort of dislocated from from the primary market. Mm. I mean, the primary market is where you sort of sell your stock and then it goes into the stock market and people start buying and selling it. Mm. And and it's like the stock mar- market has become this, it's a little bit like gambling almost for, for some people. Um, I think it's a lot like gambling. But yeah. yeah. Mm. And I read somewhere, somebody was recommending that never invest in things that you don't understand. Mm. Um, and that's probably like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I tell my mom that even though I'm not allowed to, uh, mm. but she's my mom. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I, I think like 
if you don't understand the the mechanics of the stock market and if it's money that's important to you maybe speak to your bank person and and get advice on on what to do instead mm-hmm. um i think currently the stock market has been rising so much the last year is that it gives a sense of security that you shouldn't have mm-hmm. um, because you have all of these algorithms you have all the governmental decisions that can come kind of overnight that that will sort of limit some stocks and i mean if you look at australia this is my favorite example because it mm-hmm. comes to sustainability um the australian government decided to to ban um uh, coal oh. um and that had a big impact on all the companies that were holding coal in um, yeah and from a sustainability viewpoint it's perfect um uh, because now you have an example of why sustainability is an important factor um in investments as well oh. yes so more sustainability less um algorithmic trading maybe <laughs> or more sustainable stock market yeah. rules or yeah. so i don't know yeah mm. yeah it's i mean it i guess it's the same with the regulations in in all parts that mm. it's technology that moves very fast mm. and then the regulators are kind of running to to keep up mm. i'm thinking i have i have two topics a little mm. bit switching theme now okay and sure. one one topic we could explore is um you know more more detail around uh, driving innovation and even research i mean like you having now postgrad studies coming in do you have a, uh, uh, you have a real uh, focus on this i know peltarion you have your fair mm. or pair yeah pair you don't have fair you have pair <laughs> <laughs> but google has stolen that name i'm really annoyed they also have a pair team which uh, uh, they should have gear right now yeah but facebook can so peltarion ai research yeah, yeah. oh nice yes. yeah so i mean like so talking about how is sb do thinking about the research right mm-hmm. in in skania in vattenfall of course we have r&d mm-hmm. how does that work in the bank this is one topic the other topic i really want to do i want to get a little bit geeky on the on the tech stack Mm-hmm. how you how, what what is you, how do you think about the tech stack for your 10 data scientists and how do they actually interact with IT and data platform this is a huge topic for a lot of companies to understand should we do it on prem should we do it on cloud you know uh, you, we say we get started but, but what are you actually using right mm-hmm. so those are two yeah. favorite topics of mine and you can choose or you can choose Salah yes Salah uh, how do you get industries <laughs> like or companies like SEB to invest more in research. I mean, I know you, you start you, you gave it there. Yeah. 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 You got um, that so 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 let's explore research. Okay. I, I know. We start I, with research. <laughs> I, mean, I, I thought a lot for that in, in Spotify. And it wasn't easy. Mm. And, and and how did you was it an easy uh, journey so to speak in SEB to get that working or Um yeah. Do, do you do research? Do you see it yourself that you have research? I think you have. Yes. But is it, can you sell it like that internally? Um I've chosen not to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I do it a bit guerrilla style. Uh no, but so um, no, we we are, we are outing you now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not the research and development department of SEB. Um what we do is that we have a lot of uh, masters these are students that do interesting things for us like mm-hmm. the um federated uh, recommender mm-hmm. engine um idea and we've had a lot of students over the years very talented individuals i think it's always super fun to work with them because they they come with a very different sort of Fresh angle ideas. on things yeah and it's also for us to be able to explore areas that we haven't done before mm-hmm. then we have um so we have two industrial phd students in the bank right now mm-hmm. 
One of them works on the trading floor mm -hmm. and is working on improving our execution algorithms uh, for our clients um, using reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one is, is my PhD student. Mm -hmm. um, and he is looking at um, detecting anomalies in financial transaction data uh, using topological data analysis and some sort of topological abstract ideas uh, in order to be able to do something with the data. So we have like, we have the master's thesis students and then we have the industrial PhD. PhD students. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking into adding even more sort of um, collaborations with with more senior um, academic researchers. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'm co-supervisor with with one person and, and the uh, other PhD student has co-supervisors at mm -hmm. KTH. Um, but we also have a lot of other areas that we want to explore. And, and the VASP, uh, Valenberry AI Autonomous Systems and Software Program. Yeah. Um, and, and is, don't forget AI, the added AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valenberry <laughs> AI Autonomous Systems and yeah, okay, Software Program. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Vice, Vice? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's still... Vice? It's still a VASP. Yeah. I VASP? It's still VASP. Yes. Okay. It's just... Yeah. <laughs> I know. It doesn't... Yeah. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. So that very much gives us the opportunity to explore different kinds of things that we want to do together with academic researchers. And I think the, a lot of the, the guest professors and, and a lot of the lecturers that have been hired in the program um, have very interesting profiles for us. And hopefully we can, can like convince them that things that we want to look into can be interesting for them as well. Hmm. But, but would you say this is now a little bit more structured that you we need to do AI research. We need to better understand where this could be going in the next couple of years. So, so typically, sometimes innovation is hard in a large corporate because oh, what's your ROI in the first year? Mm. Uh, we're kind of working on a different time horizon here. So uh, do you think that has that changed? Or has, is this because it, I really feel like you're going in this direction and I think it's fantastic, mm. the only way to do it. But is it, is it more gorilla right now? Yeah, it's it's way more gorilla. <laughs> I think it's like, I mean, we have people that are passionate about research in the mm -hmm. bank and it's sort of connecting arms and, and sort of doing stuff a little bit on the side in order to, to um, yeah, I mean, the, the best part about the PhD students is that they're, they're so good yeah, um, yeah. and and it's so much fun to talk to them and it's like mm. it gives us so much inspiration um, and then I don't know that we would be able to to have like 20 PhD students in our organization as it is now mm. um, I think we need to mature into that yeah mm. so, but, so how did you sell or maybe that was not the sell uh, <laughs> Peltorion uh, starting pair was that from the beginning or quite early uh, Peltorion has had the luxury of always being interested in research yes and, and the founder is a professor and yeah and we course. had professor in the board yeah, yeah. and, and yeah, different, C, kind of, different style CEO so I think <laughs> that's not the, the normal kind of company perhaps I guess not. but it, it was a challenge it's Spotify and you know when I left I think they removed basically anything of the research groups and whatnot so it, it is kind of sad and everything moved to New York and it's like ah I, I think it's super important to try to promote industrial research in general yes. And if you look at the big, you know, tr if we try to learn of the top, you know, if we want to close the AI divide, maybe we should take a look at the top of the top, what they're doing and how they're thinking. And maybe we could learn something, hint, hint, who is publishing the most papers, who is sort of doing the brain drain in here. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, so there's something they're doing right. Yeah. But by, by putting investments, how many percent? Five? Ten? Yeah. Jeez, yeah. oh, if you get five percent, that would be awesome. I mean, like, there's imagine, no imagine <laughs> any company... And and this comes natural to the to the fat man. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. It comes completely natural. And why doesn't it come natural to us? And we think we're going to sustain this? Mm. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so please. (laughs) I mean, what I'm kind of hoping um, is that it will become a natural part of even financial services. I think one of the challenges with like doing academic research collaborations is that it's not yet in our DNA. In Um, In the financial industry. Yeah. I think I was quite surprised coming from math where what you do probably interests like two people. Um, so you could even have like an open Google Doc <laughs> where you were sort of <laughs> writing your theorems and proving them because no one cares. <laughs> no, um, no security breach here. <laughs> yeah. And then you come to financial services where obviously you have the bank law, but you also have like this um, uh, culture of, of building things inter- internally to quite a large extent. And it's that that's your competitive edge or um, non-edge. And this is so far away from open source, yeah. from the whole thing. So yeah. it's a culture, sh- you know, clash. Yeah. yeah, it is. And and it's a little bit sort of reminiscent of, of medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for me, it's fascinating to see what's happened during the pandemic where they decided that like they would publish articles without peer review. They decided that they would start sharing data between research groups that normally would be like cutthroat competitors. Um, but now they realize that, okay, we actually need to collaborate with each other in order to create a, a better world or, or to, to create a, a vaccine so that we can actually I mean, um, I think that, that's a super interesting topic, you know, mm. how the pandemic have influenced the research community in, in different ways. Uh, and I'd love to actually speak about that. But okay, so you actually are able to do some research in, in SB. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I yeah. hope that can inspire and other maybe gorilla is the best to, way to, to do it. Do it. Why yeah, not? Maybe to begin with. I mean, it's not super gorilla. Our CEO knows that we have these PhDs. No, <laughs> no, no but you don't, you don't need to. Uh, or, or do we need to have another? Do we need to put it in the org chart? Yeah. What, what does that give you in reality? Not, yeah. not so much. It's no, exactly. Because it's going to be about passion and about yeah. the right people. And then virtually use organize that and yeah. make it happen now. Yeah. And I think defining like a project and, and having KPIs and stuff, it doesn't work in research. It needs to be something very different. Yes. And especially, I think, in AI, I mean, that field is moving so, so quickly. Fast. So yeah. it's different from, I think, most other fields. Yeah. And uh, But I think the yeah. main, main bottom line here, if we are trying to close the AI divide, we kind of also need to, you know, understand what needs to happen in order for, for to be on the, the next level. And even if we are not doing it on their level, we th- th- there's a long way to step up just a little to step up just a little bit. Yeah. And even if we double our R and D investments in, in in typical companies like this, it's peanuts, mm. right? Yeah. Just double it, no problem. Yeah, stop thinking about the next quarter and start thinking about the next five years or something. Yeah, yeah. maybe like that. Maybe yeah. like. That. And there, I actually think that SEB is is pretty cool because mm. I, I think it is a bit different. Um, I think we sometimes dare to take bets like we have this SEBX, which is like a, a bank right. in the bank oh, um, yeah. that's using like google cloud from Limpa, as they say in swedish <laughs> um from from the beginning to the end and and really sort yeah, of experimenting. Put financial data in the cloud then or yeah but it's it, not seb data it's uh, uh, okay. sebx clients so it's uh, okay. it's a company called unicorn Uniquo, Uniquo, Uniquo. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it has nothing to do really with SEB. Oh, it's just that it's sort of. An I would incubator. be super impressed otherwise. But yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> it, eventually, it's a little bit like okay, we have so much stuff hindering us, so let's set up an experiment on the side. Yeah. Do a bank, yeah. but we do SBX yeah. and see what happens. Yeah, and and as a way to learn and maybe bring it over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's quite sort of. I, 
at some stage I was giving a talk about data um, and I wanted to talk about like the structure of data and how it's ch changed from like um, just simple flat files to knowledge graphs and, mm -hmm. and the next generations after that. Um, and so I, I looked at the the kind of the year that this was sort of invented according to, I think, Wikipedia because I was bored <laughs> or lazy, sorry, not bored. Um, and then I looked at the annual reports of, of the bank mm -hmm. um, for that year and sort of looked at what, what were we doing within digitization this year. Um, and it's really fascinating to see because what I also observed that I hadn't thought that I would observe was the continuity. Um, yes, things change. Now we have internet bank and now we have FX trading and now we have this and now we have that. But the continuity is always there. It's like, it, it is, a, and that's probably why I'm still there. Um, it's this very long-term commitment to creating value for the clients and, and sometimes allowing employees to do something different to continue that creation and to ensure that we're still relevant. And I think that's quite different when from from other companies that I sometimes can observe where you get like, you get- Start, stop, project, go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you hire someone 12 months later, they haven't delivered, so they're gone. Um, and especially in, in AI research, it takes way more time than 12 months. Um, and, and if you do that, you're just gonna create this, like, yeah. I don't think it's going to work very well. We, we talk about the <laughs> prototype graveyard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I think, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, we need to make the pilots go into production, make them fly, all this. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Um, speaking about accelerating research, and research takes time sometimes, but at some, you know, when you're put to the corner and, and uh, have extreme situations like pandemic, we <laughs> seem to be able to find ways sometimes. And you can argue a lot about the, how the research works today. And I guess in some way it's the best we have, but it all certainly has its, its challenges as well thinking about like conferences and time to actually get the publication through the reviewing process and journals having years of you know lead times and whatnot. And then we put everything on archive instead mm. and just have a preprint and ignore the conference. Or um, what do you think about this? You know, it's like a double-edged sword in some way. You can say, let's fuck it, let's publish it and do blog articles and ignore scientific articles, which would be a negative thing, I guess. And yeah. But on the other hand, you can't wait like one and a half year for publication to come through because then it's old news. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about this? You know, do you agree that this this problem exists? And any thoughts about how to fix it, or can we learn something from the pandemics about this? Or yeah, I think I have a lot of thoughts about this. <laughs> um, so in, in theoretical mathematics, um, the topics can be quite challenging. So like Andrew Welks, Wells, uh, proof of the Fermat theorem, he created a completely new theory um, in order to prove that. And, and there's um, a couple uh, really, really uh, established researchers whose names now escape me, I'm sorry, um, who have done really cool stuff and they're very well established, but then they prove something or they think they prove something. And then someone else who's also an expert within the field finds like it's actually inequality here. It's not equality. Oof, Jesus, and, and that's the level that it's on for yeah. theoretical mathematics. Mm. So there, I think peer review is absolutely essential. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, for me, it's been fascinating to, to come into the machine learning world where you don't really publish even in journals. It's the conferences where mm -hmm. you where you publish. Um, and I think it was interesting to see the way that ICML tackled the fact that they're getting so overwhelmed by mm -hmm. the amount of, of um, 
publications that are submitted um, that they they sort of made it into different tiers and now you have a lot of different people and mm. and slightly varying levels of, of sort of um, actual insights into the field that you start reviewing um, and and I think for me as a theor theoretical mathematician I wanted to be right um, but at the same time I think it's really inspiring to see what they do during the pandemic with the the medical research reports an issue there that I I feel like I've been observing is that um, media has not understood what's going on. Mm. They they still take it as this is probably peer reviewed because mm. it's been uh, published in this fantastic um, journal, mm. and they need to sort of at least take the time to look. It has, it, has this actually who been has, peer reviewed? Who has checked this yeah. for real? Yeah. Or or how many patients were were used in the study? And then I mean, even with common sense, you can understand that if it's twenty patients, the, the relevance of this is is very small. Yes, it could potentially but it be an indication. Great news. Yeah, yeah. And I I hope that the researchers who published that is that they do that because they found something small and they want other people to also continue pick up on that on and it. continue on it. But, but it's becomes really skewed when a media picks up on that way too early to draw any conclusions on it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it, it creates sort of, I mean, I'm I'm a lover of science and I think that science is the most, it's the, the best way we have to explore reality because it's not feelings. It's, it's actually scientifically validated empirically or um, in closed form that at least for these 100 people, this works. Um, and, and for me, that's better than having a feeling that maybe some, I don't know, bleach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, that's, I should not, yes. That's my <laughs> no. personal opinion. I, I love uh, it. Continue. Be personal. Um, we love it. <laughs> but so I, I think like the, the understanding of what the different publications are are absolutely crucial and i think that that media has a big role to play there uh, to to be like maybe not even report about this or when they report be very clear it's 20 people it doesn't have any scientific value as of now but it could be imp important for other teams to pick up and on it's or something it, blah, blah, blah. It, it takes us mm. on a path to continue like yeah. that I think the pandemic has so many interesting, you know, will have a big impact not only on, on the society for, you know, medical and uh, economical uh, purposes, but also, I think, on scientific uh, reasons. Mm -hmm. And what I mean with that is, uh, for one, we can't go to conferences anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to meet online. And uh, perhaps actually that's a positive thing, mm -hmm. that we can have conferences that isn't super expensive to go to, yeah. or we can meet more often and we can easily... Uh, it's it's cheaper to 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 meet someone at the conference when you don't have to travel to US perhaps to do mm -hmm. so, and we can yeah have them more frequently and or you just publish an archive <laughs> in a preprint. <laughs> so so do you think do you think it will be a positive impact of pan the pandemic so to speak on the science community or will it actually have a negative? Because you spoke about a large a large number of negative aspects mm. of not having a proper peer review process or too small experiments being performed and whatnot. So it can be both. Yes, absolutely. I mean, ICML was $100 per person this uh, year, and that was fantastic. That's quite yes. different, right? Yeah. Plus, they had the best um, uh, NLP uh, algorithm ever. <laughs> I have so well, many fun screenshots of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so As if you wanted to, because I, I had to have it texted because I sit in like an open um, office. Um, and then 
it was just, it was impossible to follow without the sound because it was like, yeah, loads of offensive words <laughs> showed up. <laughs> I can show you afterwards. <laughs> That's some yeah. work to do. Yeah, no, but I think, so the, the positive thing is that it increases the globalization in the sense that you can go to conferences that are in completely different um, mm. parts of the world. Um, but I also think that it's not the same to not meet in person. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And um, have you... Uh, published anything out of uh, Serbia? Any, any of the work done that is sort of being published or you, that you have an ambition? Maybe these PhD stu- students now potentially will publish something on this, right? Yeah, yeah. The PhD students will definitely publish. Um, the master's thesis students, of course, publish their yeah, but thesis. Locally. Um, and we we had, last year, we had a, a master's thesis student who did so many cool things that were sort of still trying to nudge her to publish because <laughs> it was really sort of yeah it was super good stuff cool. yeah yeah she master she, thesis yeah super yeah, she, cool. yeah she was done with with what we like had told her to do in, in probably mid-april so she had like a month and a half left and to then she nuts. found this new article and then she was like i want to try implementing this and then she did and it was like super insanely cool. good yeah <laughs> So cool. nice. Cool. Yes. Time is running away a bit, and, and we have a couple of topics. So I think the one you mentioned with the tech stack is super important. Uh, let's and, let's and, go there now then, and try to to do that perhaps a bit quickly, like mm. not more than five minutes max. Okay. So now well, we get into speed dating. Yes. So <laughs> this is when we do two to three minute LinkedIn clips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically. Let's talk about the tech stack for the group data scientist team and how you work. Mm-hmm. How does that work? So the, the current setup is that we have um, data engineers that help us onboard whatever data we want to start exploring. And they're not in your team, right? No. Oh, they're part of IT? Yeah. yeah. So and what do they do? Um, so they, they help maintain the, the cluster that we work on. So we have our own Hadoop. Um, behind, on-prem. Yeah, on-prem behind its own firewall um, yeah. because of bank secrecy. Um, yeah. And and we use sort of AD groups and Ranger in order to ensure that people don't suddenly see data. So Hadoop cluster of Horton no Cloudera? Uh, it doesn't matter anymore. No, it doesn't <laughs> matter same. anymore. <laughs> 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 it's the same now. So this more about which version are you on? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, we just upgraded to... So here, here's the geeky one, stuff, right? Because here is like, you know, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about, is it Horton, la, 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 is it the CDP, right? Yeah. No? But anyway. Yeah. It's a Cloudera, uh, Horton. Yeah. On, yeah. We on. started with Horton Works. Yeah. But now it doesn't matter anymore. Mm. Um, yeah. So, and, and there um, we have uh, worker, sorry, edge nodes where, where the team uh, logs in. Edge nodes? Yeah. And then they work sort of dis- distributed using Spark for doing distributed calculation, a lot of Spark. We've had a, a reading group for the team. They wanted to have that so that we do all the details that we yeah. need. And h- how do you how do you basically organize the data pipelines? Do you, do you try to create a very layered architecture, almost like a warehouse architecture using Hive, stuff like this, or really streamline data pipelines? Yeah, so uh, the way we typically work is that we do all of the training in the analytics cluster that might call like that. <laughs> um, the analytics cluster, which is the um, Hortonworks Hadoop, and then we publish the, the model to an API. Mm-hmm. And then whoever wants to query that can query from. So where you're actually they are. trying to, to make a data product out of this in some way yeah. too. And how do you containerize it into an API? What do you use for that? 
Um, we use, uh, let's see if I remember right, uh, we use MLflow for um, versioning of the machine learning models. Um, I think at some stage we had to use Jenkins in order to deploy stuff because yeah. Linux. CICD stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think they just upgraded the, the it's called OpenShift, I think. Yeah. Um, we have some new version of that where we deploy the, the APIs. And I think it's containerized, if I remember correctly. So, so there are some open source stuff here as well. Yes, yes. What, what is your favorite open source uh, shout outs you want to do? Oh, now I need to think of something really good. Yes. <laughs> I, I think some people in the team would probably kill me if I didn't say TensorFlow. Yeah. But I'm not sure. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. So, yeah. so uh, Python, 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 Python. Yeah. What? yeah, loads of Python, but then sometimes loads of Spark oh. because sometimes we have very, very large data sets. Okay, and no, but no quirky languages. Like we had some favorites in Julia and stuff like this. No, no. There, there is some people who are trying to convince us that R is good. I'm R like, is good. Eh. What's the problem with R? <laughs> um, oh, a million dollar question. Uh, I think R, R is really good for, for like when you're research related mm -hmm. um, because you have a lot of sort of uh, active research people there. Some people say maths guys love the R, R yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think so it's yeah, that's why I was interesting. Eh, yeah. Well, you should love R. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a conventional mathematician. <laughs> um, and I think R is like really good with like matrix, matrix manipulations, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. not always that you're doing matrix manipulations. No. You do other stuff as well. Huh. And I think Python is like the, the place where most data scientists work so a lot of yeah. the this is where libraries. the frameworks and libraries are yeah. i am very eager to give a rant about this as well but I'm, please uh, but i <laughs> do ahead. love that if, if you, you get into it it's no, going to no, be no, 20 no. minutes yes, by the way yeah. so let's stop there but no no think you, we have one a, little one, no, one. No, no. <laughs> okay we, we have i think we have time for one more topic and, and i'll let you choose about three different topics now um, okay so it could be women in tech i know you're a bit engaged in that it could be a woman <laughs> Um, we can speak about regulation, which is interesting in the banking, banking industry, of course, and potentially a, you know, a challenge or hindrance that in some ways. Could be about blockchains. Could that be useful or not? Can it be used together with AI? Or what's the, the pros and cons with that? If we were to choose those three, which one would you choose to speak about? I think I know what you would say. What was the middle one? Uh, women in oh, tech, regulation, regulation blockchains. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to choose. Or you pick a new one if you can. Or we it. can squeeze in two. I, I really want to talk about both women and tech and regulations if I can choose. Yeah, okay. We have one minute. So yeah. uh, but maybe, maybe we are. Regulations. Regulations are both good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> Finished. <laughs> Finished. This, this is a LinkedIn clip I really like. This is like the let's build a wall type statement. <laughs> we can tweet it even. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think when it comes to regulations, I think um, the purpose of the regulation is usually very good. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to create create a safer society, uh, trying to hinder the ideas uh, sound, but yeah. yeah. But what's the big but here? Or is it a big but? I think it is it's it's massive but. And what is that? <laughs> it's a massive <laughs> but. That's okay. Um, no, but I think it also I mean if you if you regulate too fast, then you hinder creativity. And if you regulate too slow, then bad things may have started to happen already. And it can be difficult to stop something that's already like so integrated into some sort of a, a process somewhere. Mm. And, and what do you feel about, sometimes I almost feel like we are regulating, but in the wrong way. 
we, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are actually hitting the symptoms and not the underlying topics. Yeah. And in the way, the regulation is not actually helping to, you know, what it was intended to do with the great AI divide in mind. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Um, I have this idea <laughs> that I tr keep trying to pitch to master's thesis students. <laughs> I want us to take the the whole like the legal framework that we exist in in Sweden, so including EU law, including Swedish law, including like bank law, and then I want us to to create like a knowledge graph of that, so that we can identify all the contradictions that exist, mm -hmm. and and to be able to like for instance for a financial services company be able to write like I don't know I want to do um, uh, FX swap between these two two um, uh, currencies, and then finding like it's exactly these um, paragraphs that you need to adhere to. These two will contradict That's, each other. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's super good. Cool. Knowledge graphs yeah. on the. I that love that idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, the by the way, <laughs> we can do that as a software as a service. Let's start a company yeah. and we, we sell it on the tap. Exactly. And people use input what, you know, natural language, <laughs> NLP, what yeah. the, and, a simple question, <laughs> and the knowledge graph does and spits it out. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a business idea right here, uh, Anders. I know. And it's but, free to use. <laughs> yeah, but one quote that I like, I think I heard it from Evelyn or someone in Patarian Wells, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a really good quote, and it would be fun to see if you agree. So it's a small quote, basically saying, it's dangerous to regulate technology. We should rather regulate the effects of technology. Hmm. And I think it's a bit profound, uh, actually. Yeah. And uh, it's like saying AI is dangerous. Let's not use AI. AI can be seen as a technology, but that's you know very dangerous to to go on the technique itself, mm. rather than what you use it for. It's yeah. the application. It's the effect yeah. and the impact that people have that should be regulated rather than the technique itself. Yes, I completely Would agree. And I guess I mean today is the Nobel Day, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and I guess like dynamite is probably a really good <laughs> example. <laughs> <laughs> Don't regulate the dynamite, regulate the purpose you're using it for. Love of war. I, I, that's a perfect, that's a perfect dynamite and AI. Let's not regulate the technique, but the effect of it. Uh, but, but it's so obvious, right? Because it's just an enabler or a tool and you can use it for good or for bad. Yeah. One dimension. The other dimension we had earlier on the show, well, you kind of need less regulation for Netflix mm. than for something that has huge impact on yeah. people's lives. Probably. Yes. It's that simple, right? Yeah. Okay. Should uh, we finished? Oh, I'm biting my tongue. But yes, we, we should finish. <laughs> now, now, now we... Yeah. Okay, so now I stretch. No, 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 no. What yeah, women yeah. take? Women in take. Yeah, two minutes. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at our uh, producer here. <laughs> and he says, go, man. Go, man. <laughs> we don't have time, <laughs> don't have time limits. There's a kid. <laughs> <laughs> the longest part. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is not yet in any record, by the way. We, we've done two, two hours, 15 at least. Uh, 2.45? 2.45 is oh, the record. Yeah. But then we were drunk. Okay, but... <laughs> <laughs> nice. You need to send me what that, which one that is. <laughs> I, mean, I think you know, we, women in tech is super important. And, and diversity, we, we can see. And, and, and yeah, we, diversity is a key topic, I think. Uh, we can even see that, you know, for data collection purposes, we we have um, actually a thesis student right now looking a bit into this and, and thinking about for these large NLP models, for example, and the data we use for that. Is there some difference when it terms to, to in terms of gender as an AI see it? Mm -hmm. And then you can try to swap up things. So they they have this example of if you use the term nurse, 
will it you know be connected to a male or a female and then you can swap up the term and see if the model will change the prediction if, if you change you know the gender and you can see it actually does mm. and these kind of connection between the gender and an occupation like nurse you know do of course exist in the data it's trained on so it naturally it exists in the model and uh, yeah, this is a bit different question than women in tech, but <laughs> <laughs> it is actually. I was, why are you going with this, Anders? I don't know where you're going with it. Yeah, perhaps we should stop that discussion. It's a completely different one. Okay, so let's go back to women in tech instead. Thanks. Sorry for that distraction. <laughs> it was not meant to be. Uh, okay, so women in tech. I think it's a super important one to actually have people uh, working in in the field as data scientists or as people you know developing systems. We need diversity AI. of people building. How do we attract more women like yourself into the field of AI? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I was in the <coughs> the board of the mathematics department at Uppsala University when I was a student, mm-hmm. and at the time there was a short time when when I was the only female PhD student in theoretical mathematics, mm-hmm. and and I got the question like. As a woman, what do you think? And I'm so proud of myself because I answered that I don't know because um, I can't answer for all, fin- all women. But as a Finlandsvensk, so a Swedish-speaking <laughs> Finn, my opinion is this. <laughs> I love that answer. Oh my god! What? Yeah, mm. <laughs> I did something right. No, but I, I think I mean the the thing. But is, is it important? Uh, first of all, is it important to yes. have diversity in in in, in this yes. industry? I think it's important to have diversity in in very many different aspects. Mm. I mean. <clears throat> I think if you manage to create a het- heterogeneous team, mm-hmm. um, you will notice that because they will talk a lot about culture and they will talk a lot about gender because those things are things that you can discuss. Mm. Um, whereas if you have too much of a homogeneous team and you have like one woman in the team, um, any kind of discussion about gender equality will create a sense of not belonging for the person who's who's apart. So it's exactly the same for, for male nurses and female nurses. Having that discussion in a, a homogenous group where you have some people that are like almost like anomalies, that's how they're going to feel. Um, so immediately when you start discussing that, it, it becomes... You, you need to ensure that you have like a, a secure environment for it and and not pointing at the women and saying, why are you so few? <laughs> More <laughs> exactly. like thinking about, okay, so how can we that are like adults and, and working in the field, how can we create an atmosphere that is inviting mm-hmm. for, 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 for many, many different kinds of people? Um, and I think it's... And why is it important ultimately? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I know it's a stupid question yeah. in one way, but but let's let's be let's just state it. Yes. So for me, um, it's important because building a team means that you have to have a good balance. Balance. Um, and and you have to have <clears throat> an openness. Yes. And in order to have openness, you need heterogeneity. Yes. Um, because otherwise, people are all looking in one direction. Group think. Yeah. And if someone starts looking another direction, you're an anomaly. And then so you it takes much more strength effort. Of this guy to make yeah. so you you miss bad good ideas and yeah. you miss bad ideas yeah absolutely and i mean my my one of my heroes is joy Bolamwini, who is a, a strong member of the algorithmic justice league um justice league? And, yeah. algorithmic justice league yeah. what a cool they do yeah. a lot of really cool stuff um and uh, so she she's quite famous for for uh, analyzing the the facial recognition algorithms um, that many different tech companies have, and and so she realized she's a, a a person of color in the U.S. and and she tried out the facial recognition algorithms and they didn't recognize that she even had a face. 
Yeah. And yeah. then uh, some of these examples we've heard about yeah. Twitter or whoever, yeah. Google Photos, Google and, Photos yeah. and all this. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so she was she behind looking at some of these cases, maybe? I don't know. But the, so the reason why she's my hero is that uh, a she tried to like she cut a face out of paper and put it in, in front of her face and the, the facial recognition Jesus algorithm Christ. recognized the face, yeah. but it was just paper yeah. um, and then coded bias. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have a new. I, I really want to see that movie, Coded Bias. Mm. Um, and and then what she did? Is that Netflix? Uh, I don't know. I I tried to to find it, but it looks like you have to connect to like local cinemas in the U.S. Right. So hopefully it will be more available. We can always email her. Yeah. Um, and and then what she did was that she created a benchmark of how the the world looks. Um, so she looked at, at pictures from from many different cultures, and and she tried out the algorithms with this sort of benchmark of the world population, and then she sent the feedback to the technology companies, and she said like I'm a researcher, I will be publishing this in my thesis in two weeks time, um, please let me know if you're interested in having a discussion, <laughs> and and one of the companies actually responded, and she was invited to somewhere in Silicon Valley, um, and she met with the, the the people who had built the facial recognition algorithm, and it turned out that it was white middle-aged men <laughs> and and they were really thankful um, that she'd done this work and they said that they understand that they really need to focus on this and 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 they need to think about the fact that they aren't diverse and they need to take that into account and so now we went full circle on her topic yeah. back to your topic <laughs> by the way exactly yeah nice really <laughs> super nice but one i think you know interesting discussion we have had uh, you know throughout different companies in the past, but you know, how do you create a job ad? And especially mm-hmm. if you want to have like a data engineer or ML engineer or data scientist or what, or AI research engineer, whatever. We, I think that question is hard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's, I think a lot of job ads, if you look at them, is in some way more appealing to men than mm-hmm. women because of the way it's formatted. Do, do you think about, you know, how you formulate job ads in, in a way that becomes more gender neutral in some way? Um, I think I think about formulating ads so that they would appeal to people that I would like to recruit. Mm. Um, I, I specifically avoid words like senior or super senior or... Mm. Uh, things that feel a little bit maybe scary because mm. I don't want people to be scared. Yeah, I don't want people to be scared, and I don't want people to apply for the position because it has a cool title. Mm. Um, I want people that are genuinely interested in the the stuff that they're going to be doing. So I try to be as concrete as possible and and just like explain this is kind of what you'll be doing. <laughs> okay. And please feel happy to to meet my team and talk to them about what they do, and, and that will give you a better feeling. Oh, it sounds great. I, Has it worked? I think so. I have and, and, and a lot of applications. Yeah. And cool, good applications. Yeah, I think. And, and, and diverse applications. Yeah, definitely. I, but I think, like, I think, and we have a lot, a lot of discussions about this sometimes. Um, I think the process that we have for hiring people um, is beneficial for finding nice people. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's kind of key. why. Why? What's making the nice people? Why is that? Well, I think I was. What lucky. are you doing different then? Uh, or, <laughs> I don't or maybe know. <laughs> everybody's doing that, but I don't know. Yeah, I think I was lucky in the beginning to to have really, really, really good people in the in the initial team, 
Um, and I think when, when we hire people to my specific team and also to other teams, um, we have like a process um, where they meet me first. So I get a feeling for whether I would like to have them in my team. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get to do like a, a small work task and they meet people from my team without me. Mm-hmm. So, so to work on something together with them. Yeah. yeah this so is interesting. It's not that they are doing a work task to look at them, but you want to see the dynamics with your team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Super so they, they get quite a, a short time frame to start working on the subject and then they meet with the team and they have like a discussion about what could they do next and, and what did they this find. This is super and good. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and it's like, and that's just to assess. The did level. that come natural or is that iterative? You figure that out. That's super smart. That, that I think it kind of grew from a process of, of recruiting people quite like a lot of people for me. <laughs> because people have work tasks, right? Mm. Or they have tests, but how often do they do it in collaboration yeah. with the team? Th- that is to me in the next level. Yeah. I mean, the, the aim of that interview is to, um, of course, assess the skill levels of the person, but there's no showstoppers there. No. I mean, it, you might have done a really crappy thing, but as long as you have... Good interaction. A, yeah, a good interaction good. And, and sort Jelly. of... Yeah, yeah, and you can be like, I have no idea what the, how to do this, but I tried this and it didn't really work. That's more than fine as long as you have the right attitude, mm. and and, and the, an approach maybe. Yeah, and a willing to learn. Mm. Wow, awesome! You got another That's topic. A in. Lot of great Recru- tips, You I got think, recruitment right. in as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Salam, uh, what's next in your life in coming months and years? Christmas holidays. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So I mean, at work, we're really focusing on. Um, some specific areas like financial crime prevention and and pricing. Um, We have some up-and-coming collaborations with with the ethical research team at Umel University, Mm, um, looking into kind of how can we monitor for ethical values and how can we identify our values and and how can we implement that into a machine learning algorithm. Mm. Um, Really cool stuff. And then I think, yeah, learning things continuously. <laughs> What's the next thing you are planning to learn? I think the ethical stuff is super ethical interesting. Stuff. And then yeah. differential privacy, definitely. Differential yeah. privacy. I think that's a, it's such a cool area. I, I can see. What do you mean with differential privacy? Yeah. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um, <laughs> differential privacy is about creating kind of truly anonymized data sets. Uh. Um, so that's kind of the, the main goal. Um, because, I mean, GDPR says that a data set is not anonymous if you, by combining with knowledge or other data sets, um, then... You can figure it out. Yeah, you can figure it out, then it's not anonymous. And it's enough to identify one one person. Hmm. Um, So differential privacy is about creating kind of noise um, in a way that you can't identify uh, an individual. Um, Okay. Yeah. And it's surprisingly mathematically well founded as well, which yes. I think you appreciate yes. compared to a lot of other kind of. <laughs> oh yeah, that really got you going. I, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a mathematically closed theory. Wow. <laughs> oh, um, if you were to recommend someone to come on this show, do you have any specific people that you think of? Yeah, I mean, I, I have heroes. Um, I would recommend Shiva um, mm-hmm. from ABB. Of course. Yes. I think she's super cool. We, yeah, 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 we know her. Yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> and then, on the radar. yeah, she's on the radar. And then I think from the from the AI agenda work, um, I think Linda Leopold and what she does right. is is really interesting. She has like a a, a bit of a novel approach, um, mm. like coming to it from from the ethical aspect, really, mm. and doing a lot of philosophical um, questioning. 
Awesome. Wow. Great uh, recommendation. <laughs> Super nice and, uh, conversation. Thank you very much. I wish you the merriest Christmas and Happy yeah. New Year. Thank, thank, you. thank you again. Thank, thank you so you much for the invitation. Much, it was really fun. <laughs>